Hello, listener. Thank you for listening to our content. Remember to follow us here on the platform. We prepared a graphic of the book with the author's key points and main ideas. Click that book graphic link in description now and have access to an illustrated material with simple and easy steps so you know everything about the book in minutes. Introduction to the Revised Edition What follows is a total rewrite of the first edition of Getting Things Done, originally published in 2001. Well, a sort of rewrite. I actually retyped the original manuscript start to finish with the goal of identifying and revising content and language that was either incomplete, outdated, or otherwise not optimal for keeping the book functional as a continuing and evergreen manual, one that would be useful globally and remain relevant and applicable for the 21st century and even beyond. I also wanted to incorporate the most significant and interesting things I've seen and learned about the methodology that Getting Things Done introduced, as I've continued to be involved with it in myriad ways since the book's first publication. That includes my own deeper understanding of its power, subtlety, and range of application, as well as how it has been received as awareness of it has spread around the world. What didn't need to change as I reassessed the book were its fundamental principles and core techniques. As I crafted this new edition, reacquainting myself with what I wrote then was a gratifying acknowledgement that the principles of stress-free productivity I described, and even most of the best practices of how to apply them, haven't wavered, nor will they, in the foreseeable future. In order for a space exploration team to land on Jupiter in 2109, they will have to employ the same principles for maintaining control and focus as anyone does today. They'll still need some version of an entry, explained later, to capture potentially meaningful inputs they didn't expect in order to trust their choices about what to focus on during their first excursion. And next action decision-making will always be critical for successful execution of any task, whatever its scope. Because many elements of the way we live and work have changed since the first edition, though, I've made appropriate recalibrations in the fundamental material and will share my thoughts here about things that I consider new and interesting in this arena, offering relevant advice to both those new to this methodology and the getting things done aficionados who may be listening to this edition and want to keep abreast of the latest developments concerning it. What's new? Here are some of the key areas in the What's New category that have influenced my revision. The Rise of Digital Technology The continuing manifestation of Moore's Law, digital processing power increasing exponentially over time, along with the social and cultural ramifications of the expansion of the digital world into our daily lives, never fails to surprise, delight, and overwhelm us. Because getting things done deals primarily with the content and meaning of what we need to manage, irrespective of how it shows up or gets organized, whether in digital form or on paper, advances in technology are to some degree irrelevant to the essence of its methodology. An email request means essentially the same thing and has to be processed the same way as a favor asked of you at the coffee machine. But the wired wireless world has both enhanced and exacerbated how we can apply the core practices of capturing, organizing, and accessing what's meaningful. While we now have access to lots of super tools and apps that show up on an almost daily basis and do really great stuff, that plethora of options can easily blow our productivity fuses. Staying on top of 
and leveraging ever-evolving technologies adds significant pressure to getting one's appropriate workflow methodology right. I've accordingly changed some of my earlier emphases on types of tools that are best suited to particular tasks and acknowledge the ubiquity of our new digital and mobile world. I've also eliminated most of my references to specific software applications that appeared in the first edition. The rate of innovation in this area means that any specific software program can easily be outdated, upgraded, or undermined by the next new thing by the time you hear about it. I've essentially hopped out of that fray, opting instead to provide a general model for how to evaluate the usefulness of any tool. For this edition, I grappled with how much attention to continue to devote to paper-based tools and materials, especially for capturing, reference filing, and incubating, as many in the younger generations have come to believe they don't have to deal with paper at all. At the risk of dating myself, I decided to leave most of those instructions from the first edition intact here, as many of the potential readers and listeners of this new edition around the world will still be at least partially paper-based. Ironically, there's a growing resurgence of interest in the use of paper among the most sophisticatedly digital. Time will tell whether we can ever truly get rid of that in-your-hand, in-your-face medium. By the way, as I write this, I'm in the middle of a move to Europe from the U.S., attempting to reduce my physical possessions to a bare minimum. So I scanned and digitized everything in my physical tickler file, which I have used for 30 years, described later. Already I've been frustrated several times with things that would have been much more easily handled had I kept the physical version. The 24-7 World I'm often asked what new advice GTD, getting things done abbreviated, can offer to the mobile, connected, and always-on world. The necessity of dealing with frequent and complex barrages of potentially significant data was probably true in the past for remarkable individuals such as Napoleon as he marched through Europe, or Bach as he composed, or even Andy Warhol as he decided what to paint or show in a gallery. Now, though, the entire world's digitally connected literate population is the recipient of an explosion of nonstop potentially important or at least relevant information. The ease with which it can be accessed through technology has made it simultaneously rewarding in its opportunities and treacherous in its volume, speed, and changeability. If you are by nature fascinated by what may be going on when you hear sirens in your neighborhood, or wonder what a group of people across the room at a party is excitedly talking about, then you are ripe for becoming a victim of the endless and powerful distractions your personal technology dishes out to you. Whether your experience with it is ultimately positive or negative depends primarily on the application of the practices in this book. The Globalization of GTD Methodology I'm often asked if the GTD process can translate into other cultures, and my answer has always been a resounding, of course. The core message of the book is so inherently relevant to the human condition that I've yet to experience any cultural bias nor, frankly, any gender, age, or personality-type differentials in the applicability of the methodology. The awareness of the need for it and what purposes it will serve will, of course, be different for each individual, but that is more a function of one's station in life, the nature of one's work, and one's interest in self-improvement than it is any of the other factors. 
In actual practice, you will potentially have more in common with many hundreds of thousands of people around the world in your resonance with GTD than you will with your next-door neighbor or even your cousin Raphael. Since its initial publication, awareness of the Getting Things Done message has spread worldwide. The first edition has been translated into more than 30 languages, and our company has established franchises in many countries to provide training programs based on its content. While I was relatively confident about the cross-cultural coherence of this methodology when I wrote the book, the ensuing years have simply validated that confidence in spades. An approach that is more inclusive of a larger population of readers, listeners, and users. The primary impetus for my writing Getting Things Done was to craft a manual for the methodology that I had formulated, tested, and implemented, mostly in the corporate training and development world. In its examples, style, look, and feel, I wore a tie on the cover, the book was initially and principally addressed to managers, executives, and higher-level fast-track professionals. While I already knew that the material could be equally valuable for homemakers, students, clergy, artists, and even retirees, it was professionals who at that time were the most aware of the need for the kind of help I was seeking to provide, as a means both to advance their own development and productivity, as well as to stay sane in the process. They were at the front lines, the advance guard, in engaging with the impending flood of information and rapid and significant change the business world was experiencing, and also had access to resources to tackle these issues. Today, there is a much more universal interest in the results that can be achieved with relaxed, focused control, and the realization that it is not just a one-shot recipe of time management tips simply for business professionals, but in fact, a lifestyle practice necessary to deal with the new world most all of us are experiencing. I regularly receive testimonials from a diversity of people around the world in an infinite variety of situations about the life-changing value they've experienced applying GTD principles. This validation of the growing need across the planet for such a model has inspired me to reframe many of my examples and the focus of that text to support it. From that perspective, I have to acknowledge that even the title of this book can be somewhat misleading, giving many the impression that I am somehow advocating working harder and longer to get more done. Productivity, unfortunately, does have connotations of both business and busyness. In truth, this book is not so much concerned with getting things done as it is championing appropriate engagement with your world, guiding you to make the best choice of what to do in each moment and to eliminate distraction and stress about what you're not doing. The resulting clarity and psychological space can benefit a much broader range of people than simply professionals on a corporate career track. Some of the most interesting endorsements of the value of applying the Getting Things Done principles and techniques have come from unexpected quarters. The head of the world's largest finance organization, a popular American comedian, the most listened to U.S. radio personality, the CEO of a major European conglomerate, one of the most successful Hollywood directors, all have attributed huge benefits in their life and work to GTD. Feedback from the clergy of many different religions has also been fascinating. While they are responsible for handling otherworldly matters, they've been starved for ways to focus more in that realm with their flocks by freeing themselves of the distractions of the day-to-day -day business aspects of leading a congregation. Students, designers, doctors, the list of self-identified GTD advocates is endless. Over the years, I've discovered that we're all in this game together. 
It's now great to have the opportunity to frame an outreach to encompass the full breadth of GTD users. A greater awareness of the time and energy required for the full implementation of the GTD process and the behavioral changes required to maintain it. Alas, as easy as it is to actually do what I suggest as best practices in this book, I have been rudely awakened to these two phenomena. One, the amount of information and suggested activities here can easily be perceived as too overwhelming for someone to even begin to implement them. And two, making some of the fundamental practices habitual can take quite a while for most people. Because I have continued to resist dumbing down this model and its details, I'm not sure I can ever overcome the objection of too much to absorb. The first edition of Getting Things Done included detailed instructions and recommendations about how to fully implement its methodology in your life and work, and I have retained them here. I now know that for many who are new to this game, this will seem more than comfortable or possible to incorporate all at once. But I cannot with integrity hold back the instructions about how to really integrate this method into your everyday life if you want to go for it. If you are interested in learning to play tennis, I wouldn't want to hold back at least a blueprint of the game, including a vision of excellence and the levels of learning and practice involved to get there. In the newly added Chapter 15, I've sought to illuminate the depth and breadth of the game I'm introducing, and to make it more comfortable for you to take what you can and will from what you hear, and make it okay for you to simply glean and implement whatever you might from it, for now. I've attempted in this version of the book to add more graciousness to respect the potentially daunting task of rearranging your personal practices and systems. It's really all about one step at a time. In every case, however, a key challenge is applying and sustaining these practices as an ongoing set of habits, to the point that they will require the minimal application of conscious focus, or juice, and merely become an everyday part of keeping one's mental and physical environment in good order. I cannot pretend to be an expert in how to change one's habits. I've been much more invested in figuring out and refining the practices of stress-free productivity. An excellent resource in this area is Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit. The behavioral ingredients of GTD are actually relatively simple and familiar to everyone. How hard is it to write something down, decide what the next step is to move it forward, record the reminder of that on a list, and review the list? Most everyone admits he or she needs to establish a practice like this, and few do it consistently enough to feel good about it. How challenging it is for someone to internalize the need to consistently keep every unnecessary distraction out of his or her head has been one of my biggest surprises over the years. Information from cognitive science research that has validated the efficacy of the GTD methodology. I no longer feel as much like a voice crying in the wilderness as I did at the turn of the century. For since then, scientific data has emerged validating the principles and practices prescribed in this book. The new Chapter 14 here, GTD and Cognitive Science, features an examination of some of this research. If you are new to this, and if you've gotten this far in the introduction, you're probably interested in jumping in at some level of engagement. I've structured Getting Things Done as a practical manual, much like a cookbook that frames the basic principles presents many layers of what cooking and serving a meal is all about, and gives enough specific recipes to enable you to make an infinite number of future dinners. If I've done a decent job in crafting this new edition, you can just start at the next chapter and take it from there, as you feel so moved. 
GTD principles, as they are laid out in the book, have been verified by many as a powerful experience to work through and apply. Or you can simply jump around, skim the text, randomly dive into a paragraph or two. The book has been written to serve you in that way as well. If you already have some getting things done experience, this will still be a new book. Over the many years that this information has been available in multiple forms, whenever anyone loops back through the material, they invariably have a response like, Oh my God, this is totally different information and perspective than I could recognize and absorb when I read it earlier. Even people who have reread the original edition of GTD as many as five times have professed to me it was a totally different book each time. The experience is very much like reading a software manual a year later, after you've gotten the basics on cruise control. You'll be amazed and enthused about all the cool stuff you realize you could be doing right at your fingertips, but that you couldn't recognize and implement, given the other major issues that needed to be addressed to set things up. No matter when or how many times you might have read or listened to an earlier version of Getting Things Done, or participated in any of the seminars, coaching, webinars, podcasts, or other presentations of this material, you will experience a novel and absorbing level of engagement in this revised edition. I promise you that. What will open up in the following program is a new universe of ideas to incorporate within the structure and tools you likely already have in place. Engaging with this book and the information within it will consistently provide a positive and productive mindset about the aspects of your life and work that genuinely matter. Welcome to Getting Things Done. Welcome to a gold mine of insights into strategies for how to have more energy, be more relaxed, with more clarity and presence in the moment with whatever you're doing, and get a lot more accomplished with much less effort. If you're like me, you like getting things done and doing them well, and yet you also want to savor life in ways that seem increasingly elusive, if not downright impossible, if you're working too hard. This doesn't have to be an either-or proposition. It is possible to be effectively doing while you are delightfully being in your ordinary workaday world. I think efficiency is a good thing. Maybe what you're doing is important, interesting, or useful, or maybe it isn't, but it has to be done anyway. In the first case, you want to get as much return as you can on your investment of time and energy. In the second, you want to get on to other things as fast as you can, without any nagging loose ends. And whatever you're doing, you'd probably like to be more relaxed, confident that whatever you're doing at the moment is just what you need to be doing, that having a beer with your staff after hours, gazing at your sleeping child in his or her crib at midnight, answering the email in front of you, or spending a few informal minutes with the potential new client after the meeting is exactly what you ought to be doing as you're doing it. Teaching you how to be maximally efficient and relaxed whenever you need or want to be was my main purpose in writing this book. And after many years of sharing this information and set of best practices around the world, in the most varied environments and with the widest range of people of all types and ages, I can unequivocally attest it works. How do you know that what you're doing is what you ought to be doing at any point in time? No software, seminar, cool notebook, smartphone, or even personal mission statement will give you more than 24 hours in a day, simplify its content, or make this often tough choice for you. Used appropriately, those kinds of tools can provide support for your decisions, but they don't in and of themselves get you in control and focused. What's more, 
Just when you learn how to enhance your productivity at one level, you'll graduate or be forced to the next accepted batch of responsibilities and creative goals, whose new challenges will defy the ability of any simple formula, buzzword du jour, or new digital mobile device to get you back on your game for your next stage in work and life. You may have established personal habits and tools that work for a while, but a major change, such as a big shift in your job, a first baby, or buying a home, will test their sustainability and likely create serious discomfort, if not havoc. But if there's no single technique or tool for perfecting organization and productivity, there are very specific things we do to facilitate them. Over the years, I've uncovered simple processes that we can all learn to use that will vastly improve our ability to deal proactively and constructively with the mundane realities of the world, while still feeling connected to our more meaningful priorities. And those practices have proven to be viable universally across time. They apply if you're trying to manage your homework at age 12, and if you need to regroup about your corporation's strategies after your last board meeting, and to everything in between. What follows is a compilation of more than three decades' worth of discoveries about personal and organizational productivity, a guide to maximizing output and minimizing input, and to doing so in a world in which work is increasingly voluminous, ever-shifting, and ambiguous. I, and many colleagues, have spent hundreds of thousands of hours coaching some of the brightest and busiest people you can imagine, in the trenches, at their desks, in their homes, with their doors closed, helping them capture, clarify, and organize all of their work and commitments at hand. The methods I have uncovered have proved to be highly effective in all types of organizations, at every job level, across cultures, and even at home and school. After years of coaching and training some of the most sophisticated and productive professionals, along with their kids, I know the world is hungry for these methods. Executives at the top are looking to instill a standard of ruthless execution in themselves, their staffs, and their cultures, as well as how to keep their personal lives appropriately in balance and in play. They know, and I know, that behind closed doors, after hours, there remain unanswered calls, tasks to be delegated, unprocessed issues from meetings and conversations, senior-level accountabilities not yet clarified and under control, personal responsibilities unmanaged, and dozens of potentially important emails amid their hundreds or even thousands still not dealt with. Many of these business people are successful because the crises they resolve and the opportunities they take advantage of are bigger than the problems they allow and create in their own offices, homes, and briefcases. But given the pace of business and life today, the equation is often in question. And more critically for many, People are not paying appropriate attention to their kids' school plays, sports games, or going-to-bed questions about life, or they're simply not able to be here now, anywhere, anytime. An ambient angst pervades our society. There's a sense that somehow there's probably something we should be doing that we're not, which creates a tension for which there is no resolution and from which there is no rest. On the one hand, we need proven tools that can help people focus their energies strategically and tactically without letting anything fall through the cracks. On the other, we need to create thinking habits and working environments that will keep the most caring and engaged people from burning out due to stress. We need positive work and lifestyle standards that will attract and retain the best and brightest in our organizations. And we need personal and home practices that foster clarity, control, and creativity for those we love and most important, for ourselves. 
We know this information is sorely needed in organizations. It's also needed in schools, where the vast majority of our kids are still not being taught how to process information, how to focus on outcomes, or what actions to take to make them happen. And for all of us individually, it's needed so we can take advantage of all the opportunities we're given to add value to our world in a sustainable, self-nurturing way. The power, simplicity, and effectiveness of what I'll be presenting here is best experienced as an experience, in real time, with situations in your real world. As you listen, you will no doubt be motivated to think about how you would and could implement what I'll be talking about. You'll be greatly served by actually doing what you hear as it occurs. That will take your understanding to a much deeper and more significant level. You'll find it useful to understand the models. You'll likely find it transformational to apply them. Necessarily, the book must put the essence of this dynamic art of workflow management and personal productivity into a linear format. I've tried to organize it in such a way as to give you both the inspiring big-picture view and a taste of immediate results as you go along. The book is divided into three parts. Part 1 describes the whole game, providing a brief overview of the system and an explanation of why it's unique and timely, and then presenting the basic methodologies themselves in their most condensed and basic form. Part 2 shows you how to implement the system. It's your personal coaching, step-by-step, step, on the nitty-gritty application of the models. Part 3 goes even deeper, describing the subtler and more profound results you can expect when you incorporate the methodologies and models into your work and your life. There will be inevitable repetition in the content in the three parts. The core methodology is relatively simple, but it can be expressed and understood at many different levels of depth and detail through the various lenses and lessons here. I want you to hop in, test this stuff out, even challenge it. I want you to find out for yourself that what I promise is not only possible, but instantly accessible to you personally. And I want you to know that everything I propose is easy to do. It involves no new skills at all. You already know how to focus, how to write things down, how to decide outcomes and actions, and how to review options and make choices. You'll validate that many of the things you've been doing instinctively and intuitively all along are right. I'll give you ways to leverage those basic skills into new plateaus of effectiveness. I want to inspire you to put all this into a new behavior set that will blow your mind. From time to time in the book, I refer to my work with people applying this material. I've been a management consultant, executive coach, and trainer for the past three decades, alone, in small partnerships, and as founder of a global training company. My work has consisted primarily of doing private coaching, conducting workshops, and giving presentations based on the methods presented here. I and my colleagues have now worked with thousands of people individually and trained hundreds of thousands in our in-house and public seminars around the world. We continue to engage with some of the best and brightest people all over the world. This is the background from which I've drawn my experience and examples. I am a fellow student. I throw myself out of control and lose my focus along with the rest and best of us. I equally must engage regularly with the practices I describe here to keep myself clear with an optimal presence of mind. As I've described in Chapter 15, this is a set of lifelong lifestyle habits that must be applied to engage in the world at more elevated and mature levels. I don't share anything in this book I've not personally experienced and tested for its validity 
and that I don't continue to use in some form. The promise here was well described by a client of mine who wrote, When I habitually applied the tenets of this program, it saved my life. When I faithfully applied them, it changed my life. This is the vaccination against day-to-day firefighting, the so-called urgent and crisis demands of any given workday, and an antidote for the imbalance many people bring upon themselves. Part 1. The Art of Getting Things Done Chapter 1. A New Practice for a New Reality It's possible for a person to have an overwhelming number of things to do and still function productively with a clear head and a positive sense of relaxed control. That's a great way to live and work at elevated levels of effectiveness and efficiency. It's also the best way to be fully present with whatever you're doing, appropriately engaged in the moment. It's when time disappears and your attention is completely at your command. What you're doing is exactly what you ought to be doing, given the whole spectrum of your commitments and interests. You're fully available. You're on. This is an operational style now critical for successful, high-performing professionals, a necessary mode for the sanity of anyone experiencing overextended life situations, and a fundamental platform to allow all of us the freedom to involve ourselves optimally in our most meaningful endeavors. You already know how to do everything necessary to achieve this healthy, high-performance state. If you're like most people, however, you need to apply these skills in a more timely, complete, and systematic way so you can get on top of it all instead of feeling buried. And though the method and the techniques I describe in this book are immensely practical and based on common sense, most people will still have some major habits that must be modified before they can fully enjoy the benefits of this system. The small changes required, changes in the way you clarify and organize all the things that command your attention, could represent a significant alteration in how you approach some key aspects of your day-to-day activities, but the results are often reported as transformational. The methods I present here are all based on three key objectives. One, capturing all the things that might need to get done or have usefulness for you, now, later, someday, big, little, or in between in a logical and trusted system outside your head and off your mind. Two, directing yourself to make front-end decisions about all of the inputs you let into your life so that you will always have a workable inventory of next actions that you can implement or renegotiate in the moment. And three, curating and coordinating all of that content, utilizing the recognition of the multiple levels of commitments with yourself and others you will have at play at any point in time. This book offers a proven method for this kind of high-performance workflow management. It provides good tools, tips, techniques, and tricks for implementation. As you'll discover, the principles and methods are instantly usable and applicable to everything you have to do in your personal as well as your professional life. I consider work, in its most universal sense, to mean anything that you want or need to be different than it currently is. Many people make a distinction between work and personal life, but I don't. To me, weeding the garden or updating my will is just as much work as writing this book or coaching a client. All the methods and techniques in this book are applicable across that life-work spectrum. To be effective, they need to be. You can incorporate, as many others have before you, what I describe as an ongoing dynamic style of operating in your work and in your world. 
or, like still others, you can simply use this as a guide to getting back into better control when you feel you need to. The Problem New Demands Insufficient Resources Almost everyone I encounter these days feels he or she has too much to handle and not enough time to get it all done. In the course of a single week, I consulted with a partner in a major global investment firm who was concerned that the new corporate management responsibilities he was being offered would stress his family commitments beyond the limits, and with a mid-level human resources manager trying to stay on top of her 150-plus email requests per day, fueled by the goal of doubling the company's regional office staff from 1,100 to 2,000 people in one year, all as she tried to protect a social life for herself on the weekends. A paradox has emerged in this new millennium. People have enhanced quality of life, but at the same time, they are adding to their stress levels by taking on more than they have resources to handle. It's as though their eyes were bigger than their stomachs. The plethora of options and opportunities brings with it the pressures of decision-making and choices. And most people are, to some degree, frustrated and perplexed about how to improve the situation. Work no longer has clear boundaries. A major factor in the mounting stress level is that the actual nature of our jobs has changed much more dramatically and rapidly than have our training for and our ability to deal with work. In just the last half of the 20th century, what constituted work in the industrialized world was transformed from assembly line, make-it-and-move-it kinds of activity to what the late Peter Drucker so aptly termed knowledge work. In the old days, work was self-evident. Fields were to be plowed, machines tooled, boxes packed, cows milked, crates moved. You knew what work had to be done. You could see it. It was clear when the work was finished or not finished. Increasing your productivity was all about making the work process more efficient or simply working harder or longer. Now, for many of us, there are no edges to most of our projects. Most people I know have at least half a dozen things they're trying to achieve or situations they'd like to improve right now, and even if they had the rest of their lives to try, they wouldn't be able to finish these to perfection. You're probably faced with the same dilemma. How good could that conference be? How effective could the training program be? Or the structure of your executive's compensation package? How well could you manage your kid's education? How close to perfect is the blog you're writing? How motivating is the staff meeting you're setting up? How healthy could you be? How functional is your department's reorganization? And a last question. How much available data could be relevant to doing those projects better? The answer is an infinite amount, easily accessible, or at least potentially so, through the Internet. On another front, the lack of edges can create more work for everyone. Many of today's organizational outcomes require cross-divisional communication, cooperation, and engagement. Our individual office silos are crumbling, or at least need to be, and with them is going the luxury of not having to read CC'd emails from the marketing department or from human resources or from some ad hoc deal-with-a-certain-issue committee. Add to that the increasing pull on your engagement with friends and family as distance from them disappears with even aging parents taking to the Internet and their smartphones to stay connected. The ever-new communication technologies have exponentially magnified the lack of clear limits to our commitments and our lives. The second decade of this century witnessed an explosion of concern 
about the always-on conundrum, fueled by globalization, virtual work, and connection capabilities, and not the least by the addiction to engaging with gadgets in our pockets and on our wrists that have more capacity than a room full of computers did in 1975. So, not only are work and its cognitive boundaries more ambiguous and ill-defined, so are the time and space within which we can and often should be engaged with it, along with the continuing explosion of potentially meaningful and accessible data that could add value to our lives. Our jobs and lives keep changing. The disintegrating edges of our projects and our work in general would be challenging enough for anyone. But now we must add to that equation the constantly shifting definition of our jobs, as well as the frequent changes in responsibilities and interests in the broader scope of our lives. I often ask in my seminar, which of you are doing only what you were hired to do? And how many of you have not had any significant change in your personal life in the past year? Seldom do I get a raised hand. As amorphous as edgeless work may be, if you had the chance to stick with some specifically described job long enough, you'd probably figure out what you needed to do, how much, at what level, to stay sane. And if you could keep life in general more in check, no residence moves, no relationship changes, no emerging health or lifestyle issues for you and for loved ones, no financial surprises, no motivational programs generating inspiring new directions, no career shifts thrust on you, you might be able to create a rhythm and system of managing it that would allow for some relaxed stability. But few have that luxury for three reasons. One, organizations are now almost universally in morph mode with ever-changing goals, products, partners, customers, markets, technologies, and owners. These all, by necessity, shake up structures, forms, roles, and accountabilities. Two, the average professional is more of a free agent these days than ever before, changing careers as often as his or her parents once changed jobs. Even 40 and 50-somethings hold to standards of continual growth. Their aims are just more integrated into the mainstream now, covered by the catch-all arena of professional management and executive development, which simply means they won't keep doing what they're doing for any extended period of time. The Great Recession early in this century added to the uncertainties by creating the need for many to keep working after traditional retirement ages, often requiring the discovery of some other way to make money. 3. The relative speed of changes in our cultures, lifestyles, and technologies are creating greater necessity for individuals to take more control of their unique personal situations more often. Suddenly needing to handle elder care for a parent, dealing with a kid now back at home without a job, grappling with an unexpected health issue, or integrating a major change one's life partner has decided to initiate, all such seem to be happening with greater frequency, with larger consequences than ever before. Little seems clear for very long anymore, as far as what to do at the office, at home, on the plane, in the car, and at the local cafe, on the weekend, on Monday morning, on waking at 3 a.m., and on vacation and what or how much input may be relevant to doing it well. We're allowing in huge amounts of information and communication from the outer world and generating an equally large volume of ideas and agreements with others and ourselves from the inner world. And we haven't been well equipped to deal with this huge number of internal and external commitments. 
Nothing is really new in this high-tech, globally wired world, except how frequently it is. When the pace of change in life and work was much slower, once people got past the inevitable discomfort of the new, they could hang out on cruise control for greatly extended periods of time. Most of us are now living in a world that does not afford that time-out kind of luxury. It's changing while you're listening to this. And if, while you have been listening to this, you've been distracted by your mind wandering to other things going on in your life, or you felt impelled to check email for potentially meaningful new input, you're experiencing a manifestation of this don't-miss-the-train syndrome. The old models and habits are insufficient. Neither our standard education nor traditional time management models nor the plethora of digital and paper-based organizing tools available has given us a viable means of meeting the new demands placed on us. If you've tried to use any of these processes or tools, you've probably found them unable to accommodate the speed, complexity, and changing priority factors inherent in what you're doing. The ability to be focused, relaxed, and in control during these fertile but turbulent and often unstructured times demands new ways of thinking and working. There is a great need for new methods, technologies, and work habits to help us get on top of our world. The traditional approaches to time management and personal organization were useful in their time. They provided helpful reference points for a workforce that was just emerging from an industrial assembly line modality into a new kind of work that included choices about what to do and discretion about when to do it. When time itself turned into a work factor, personal calendars became a key work tool. Even in the 1980s, many professionals considered having a pocket calendar the essence of being organized, and many people today still think of their calendar and possibly their email and text inboxes as the central tools for being in control. Along with discretionary time came the need to make good choices about what to do. Creating ABC priority codes and daily to-do lists were key techniques developed to help people sort through their choices in some meaningful way. If you had the freedom to decide what to do, you also had the responsibility to make good choices, given your priorities. What you've probably discovered, at least at some level, is that a calendar, though important, can really effectively manage only a small portion of what you need to be aware of to feel on top of your world. And daily to-do lists and simplified priority coding have proven inadequate in dealing with the volume and variable nature of the average person's workload. More and more people's jobs and lives are made up of hundreds of emails and texts a day, with no latitude left to ignore a single request, complaint, order, or communication from company or family. There are few people who can, or even should, expect to code everything based upon its priority, or who can maintain some predetermined list of to-dos that the first telephone call or instant message or interruption from their boss or spouse won't totally undo. The Big Picture versus the Nitty Gritty At the other end of the spectrum, a huge number of business books, models, seminars, and gurus have championed the bigger view as the solution to dealing with our complex world. Clarifying major goals and values, so the thinking goes, gives order, meaning, and direction to our work. In practice, however, the well-intentioned exercise of values thinking too often does not achieve its desired results. I have seen too many of these efforts fail for one or more of the following three reasons. 1. 
There's too much distraction at the day-to-day, hour-to-hour level of commitments to allow for appropriate focus on the higher levels. 2. Ineffective personal organizational systems create huge subconscious resistance to undertaking even bigger projects and goals that will likely not be managed well and that will, in turn, cause even more distraction and stress. 3. When loftier levels and values actually are clarified, it raises the bar of our standards, making us notice that much more that needs changing. We are already having a serious negative reaction to the overwhelming number of things we have to do. And what created much of the work that's on those lists in the first place? Our values. Focusing on primary outcomes and values is a critical exercise, certainly. It provides needed criteria for making sometimes difficult choices about what to stop doing, as well as what most ought to have our attention amid our excessive options. But it does not mean that there is less to do or fewer challenges in getting the work done. Quite the contrary. It just ups the ante in the game, which still must be played day to day. For a human resources executive, for example, deciding to deal with quality-of-work-life issues in order to attract and keep key talent does not make things simpler. Nor would there be less to do for a mother recognizing the importance of providing valuable experiences for her teenage daughter in the few vacations left they may take together before she leaves home for work or college. Upping the quality of our thinking and commitments does not diminish the quantity of potentially relevant and important stuff to manage. There has been a missing piece in our culture of knowledge work, a system with a coherent set of behaviors and tools that functions effectively at the level at which work really happens. It must incorporate the results of big-picture thinking as well as the smallest of open details. It must manage multiple tiers of priorities. It must maintain control over hundreds of new inputs daily. It must save a lot more time and effort than are needed to maintain it. It must make it easier to get things done. The Promise The Ready State of the Martial Artist Reflect for a moment on what it actually might be like if your personal management situation were totally under control, at all levels and at all times. What if you had completely clear mental space, with nothing pulling or pushing on you unproductively? What if you could dedicate fully 100% of your attention to whatever was at hand, at your own choosing, with no distraction? It is possible. There is a way to get a grip on it all, stay relaxed, and get meaningful things done with minimal effort across the whole spectrum of your life and work. You can experience what the martial artists call a mind-like water and top athletes refer to as the zone, within the complex world in which you're engaged. In fact, you have probably already been in this state from time to time. It's a condition of working, doing, and being in which the mind is clear and constructive things are happening. It's a state that is accessible to everyone, and one that is increasingly needed to deal effectively with the complexity of life in this century. More and more, it will be a required condition for any of us who wish to maintain balance and a consistent positive output in our work and outlook in our life. World-class rower Craig Lambert has described how it feels in Mind Over Water, Houghton Mifflin, 1998. He wrote, Rowers have a word for this frictionless state, swing. Recall the pure joy of riding on a backyard swing an easy cycle of motion, the momentum coming from the swing itself. The swing carries us, 
we do not force it. We pump our legs to drive our arc higher, but gravity does most of the work. We are not so much swinging as being swung. The boat swings you. The shell wants to move fast. Speed sings in its lines in nature. Our job is simply to work with the shell, to stop holding it back with our thrashing struggles to go faster. Trying too hard sabotages boat speed. Trying becomes striving, and striving undoes itself. Social climbers strive to be aristocrats, but their efforts prove them no such thing. Aristocrats do not strive. They have already arrived. Swing is a state of arrival. The Mind-Like-Water Simile In karate there is an image that is used to define the position of perfect readiness, mind-like-water. Imagine throwing a pebble into a still pond. How does the water respond? The answer is, totally appropriately to the force and mass of the input. Then it returns to calm. It doesn't overreact or underreact. Water is what it is and does what it does. It can overwhelm, but it's not overwhelmed. It can be still, but it is not impatient. It can be forced to change course, but it is not frustrated. Get it? The power in a karate punch comes from speed, not muscle. It comes from a focused pop at the end of the whip. That's why petite people can learn to break boards and bricks with their hands. It doesn't take calluses or brute strength. Just the ability to generate a focused thrust with speed. But a tense muscle is a slow one. So the high levels of training in the martial arts teach and demand balance and relaxation as much as anything else. Clearing the mind to being open and appropriately responsive is the key. Anything that causes you to overreact or underreact can control you, and often does. Responding inappropriately to your email, your thoughts about what you need to do, your children, or your boss will lead to less effective results than you'd like. Most people give either more or less attention to things than they deserve simply because they don't operate with a mind like water. Can you get into your productive state when required? Think about the last time you felt highly productive. You probably had a sense of being in control. You were not stressed out. You were highly focused on what you were doing. Time tended to disappear. Lunchtime already? And you felt you were making noticeable progress toward a meaningful outcome. Would you like to have more such experiences? And if you get seriously far out of that state and start to feel out of control, stressed out, unfocused, bored, and stuck, do you have the ability to get yourself back into it? That's where the methodology of getting things done will have the greatest impact on your life, by showing you how to get back to mind like water, with all your resources and faculties functioning at a maximum level. A challenge for many may be the lack of a reference point as to when they fall out of the productive state. Most people have lived in a semi-stressful experience so consistently for so long, they don't know that it could be quite different that there is another and more positive place from which to engage with their world. Hopefully, this book will inspire you to raise the bar about how much pressure you will allow yourself to tolerate, knowing you have the techniques to reduce it. The Principle Dealing Effectively with Internal Commitments A basic truism I've discovered over decades of coaching and training thousands of people is that most stress they experience comes from inappropriately managed commitments they make or accept. Even those who are not consciously stressed out 
we'll invariably experience greater relaxation, better focus, and increased productive energy when they learn more effectively to control the open loops of their lives. You've probably made many more agreements with yourself than you realize, and every single one of them, big or little, is being tracked by a less-than-conscious part of you. These are the incompletes, or open loops, which I define as anything pulling at your attention that doesn't belong where it is the way it is. Open loops can include everything from really big to-do items, like end-world hunger, to the more modest, hire new assistant, to the tiniest task such as replace porch light bulb. In order to deal effectively with all of that, you must first identify and capture all of those things that are ringing your bell in some way, clarify what exactly they mean to you, and then make a decision about how to move on them. That may seem like a simple process, but in reality, most people don't do it in a consistent way. They lack the knowledge or the motivation, or both, and most likely because they aren't aware of the prices paid for neglecting that practice. The Basic Requirements for Managing Commitments Managing commitments well requires the implementation of some basic activities and behaviors. First of all, if it's on your mind, your mind isn't clear. Anything you consider unfinished in any way must be captured in a trusted system outside your mind, or what I call a collection tool, that you know you'll come back to regularly and sort through. Second, you must clarify exactly what your commitment is and decide what you have to do, if anything, to make progress toward fulfilling it. Third, once you've decided on all the actions you need to take, you must keep reminders of them organized in a system you review regularly. An important exercise to test this model. I suggest that you write down the project or situation that is most on your mind at this moment. What most bugs you, distracts you, or interests you, or in some other way consumes a large part of your conscious attention. It may be a project or a problem that is really in your face, something you're being pressed to handle, or a situation you feel you must deal with sooner rather than later. Maybe you have a holiday trip coming up that you need to make some major last-minute decisions about. You just read an email about a new and pressing issue in your department. Or perhaps you just inherited $6 million and you don't know what to do with the cash. Whatever. Got it? Good. Now describe in a single written sentence your intended successful outcome for this problem or situation. In other words, what would need to happen for you to check this project off as done? It could be as simple as, take the Hawaii vacation, handle situation with customer X, resolve college situation with Susan, clarify new divisional management structure, implement new investment strategy, or research options for dealing with Manuel's reading issue. All clear? Great. Now write down the very next physical action required to move the situation forward. If you had nothing else to do in your life but get closure on this, what visible action would you take right now? Would you call or text someone? Write an email? Take pen and paper and brainstorm about it? Surf the web for data? Buy nails at the hardware store? Talk about it face-to-face -face with your partner, your assistant, your attorney, or your boss? What? Got the answer to that? Good. Was there any value for you in those two minutes of thinking? 
If you're like the vast majority of people who complete that drill in our seminars, you'll be experiencing at least a tiny bit of enhanced control, relaxation, and focus. You'll also be feeling more motivated to actually do something about that situation you've merely been thinking about till now. Imagine that motivation magnified a thousandfold as a way to live and work. If anything at all positive happened for you in this little exercise, think about this. What changed? What happened to create that improved condition within your own experience? The situation itself is no further along, at least in the physical world. It's certainly not finished yet. What probably happened is that you acquired a clearer definition of the outcome desired and the next action required. What did change is the most important element for clarity, focus, and peace of mind, how you are engaged with your world. But what created that? Not getting organized or setting priorities. The answer is thinking. Not a lot, just enough to solidify your commitment about a discrete pressure or opportunity and the resources required to deal with it. People think a lot, but most of that thinking is of a problem, project, or situation, not about it. If you actually did this suggested exercise, you were required to structure your thinking toward an outcome and an action, and that does not usually happen without a consciously focused effort. Reacting is automatic, but thinking is not. The Real Work of Knowledge Work Welcome to the real-life experience of knowledge work and a profound operational principle. You have to think about your stuff more than you realize, but not as much as you're afraid you might. As Peter Drucker wrote, In knowledge work, the task is not given. It has to be determined. What are the expected results from this work is the key question in making knowledge workers productive, and it is a question that demands risky decisions. There is usually no right answer. There are choices instead, and results have to be clearly specified if productivity is to be achieved. Knowledge work may seem an unfamiliar concept to many in this century, simply because so much of our lives now incorporates so many non-physical and non-obvious things we need to decide, demanding constant thinking and choices. Most of us are in it all the time. The last thing a fish notices is water. But the realization of the thinking process itself that we must be applying is not explicitly realized or exercised yet by most. Knowledge work may seem an idea limited to white-collar professionals. That was the initial population in the past century that dealt with this. But anyone who has moved out of mere survival mode finds himself or herself in this game. Any parent who has ever wondered what class to choose for a child or what digital device to give him or her is in this category. Most people have a resistance to initiating the burst of energy that it will take to clarify the real meaning for them of something they have let into their world and to decide what they need to do about it. We're never really taught that we have to think about our work before we can do it. Much of our daily activity is already defined for us by the undone and unmoved things staring at us when we come to work, or by the family to be fed, the laundry to be done, or the children to be dressed at home. Thinking in a concentrated manner to define desired outcomes and requisite next actions is something few people feel they have to do until they have to. But in truth, it is the most effective means available for making wishes a reality. Why things are on your mind Most often, the reason something is on your mind is that you want it to be different than it currently is. And yet, 
You haven't clarified exactly what the intended outcome is. You haven't decided what the very next physical action step is. And or you haven't put reminders of the outcome and the action required in a system you trust. That's why it's on your mind. Until those thoughts have been clarified and those decisions made, and the resulting data has been stored in a system that you absolutely know you will access and think about when you need to, your brain can't give up the job. You can fool everyone else, but you can't fool your own mind. It knows whether or not you've come to the conclusions you need to, and whether you've put the resulting outcomes and action reminders in a place that can be trusted to resurface appropriately within your conscious mind. I'll discuss validating research in more detail in Chapter 14. If you haven't done those things, it won't quit working overtime. Even if you've already decided on the next step you'll take to resolve a problem, your mind can't let go until and unless you park a reminder in a place it knows you will, without fail, look. It will keep pressuring you about that untaken next step, usually when you can't do anything about it, which will just add to your stress. Your mind doesn't have a mind of its own. At least a portion of your mind is really kind of stupid in an interesting way. If it had any innate intelligence and logic, it would remind you of the things you needed to do only when you could do something about them. Do you have a flashlight somewhere with dead batteries in it? When does your mind tend to remind you that you need more batteries? When you notice the dead ones. That's not very smart. If your mind had any innate intelligence, it would remind you about those dead batteries only when you passed new ones in a store, and ones of the right size, to boot. Between the time you woke up today and now, did you think of anything you needed to do that you still haven't done? Have you had that thought more than once? Why? It's a waste of time and energy to keep thinking about something that you make no progress on, and it only adds to your anxiety about what you should be doing and aren't. Most people let their reactive mental process run a lot of the show, especially where the too-much-to-do syndrome is concerned. You've probably given over a lot of your stuff, a lot of your open loops, to an entity on your inner committee that is incapable of dealing with those things effectively the way they are, your mind. Research has now proven that a significant part of your psyche cannot help but keep track of your open loops, and not, as originally thought, as an intelligent, positive motivator, but as a detractor from anything else you need or want to think about, diminishing your capacity to perform. The Transformation of Stuff Here's how I define stuff. Anything you have allowed into your psychological or physical world that doesn't belong where it is, but for which you haven't yet determined what exactly it means to you with the desired outcome and the next action step. The reason most organizing systems haven't worked for most people is that they haven't yet transformed all the stuff they're trying to organize. As long as it's still stuff, it's not controllable. Almost all of the to-do lists I have seen over the years, when people had them at all, were merely listings of stuff, not inventories of the resultant real work that needed to be done. They were partial reminders of a lot of things that were unresolved and as yet untranslated into outcomes and actions that is, the real outlines and details of what the list maker had to do. Typical things you will see on a to-do list. Mom. Bank. Doctor. Babysitter. VP marketing. Etc. 
Looking at these often creates more stress than relief because, though it is a valuable trigger for something that you've committed to do or decide something about, it still calls out psychologically, decide about me. And if you do not have the energy or focus at the moment to think and decide, it will simply remind you that you are overwhelmed. Stuff is not inherently a bad thing. Things that command or attract our attention by their very nature usually show up as stuff. But once we allow stuff to come into our lives and work, we have an inherent commitment to ourselves to define and clarify its meaning. In the professional world, our jobs require us to think, assess, decide, and execute, minute by minute, whether about an email or our notes from the morning strategy meeting. That's inherent in your job. If you didn't have to think about those things, you're probably not required to. And personally, we will shortchange ourselves when we allow issues in our daily lifestyle, home, family, health, finances, career, or relationships, to lie fallow in our consciousness because of lack of definition of the specific outcomes desired and actions required. At the conclusion of one of my seminars, a senior manager of a major biotech firm looked back at the to-do list she had come in with and said, Boy, that was an amorphous blob of undoability. That's the best description I have ever heard about what passes for organizing lists in most systems. The vast majority of people have been trying to get organized by rearranging incomplete lists of unclear things. They haven't yet realized how much and what they need to organize in order to get the real payoff. They need to gather everything that requires thinking about and then do that thinking if their organizational efforts are to be successful. The Process Managing Action You can train yourself almost like an athlete to be faster, more responsive, more proactive, and more focused in dealing with all the things you need to deal with. You can think more effectively and manage the results with more ease and control. You can minimize the loose ends across the whole spectrum of your work life and personal life and get a lot more done with less effort. And you can make front-end decision-making about all the stuff you collect and create standard operating procedure for living and working in this millennium. Before you can achieve any of that, though, you'll need to get in the habit of keeping nothing on your mind. And the way to do that, as we've seen, is not by managing time, managing information, or managing priorities. After all, you don't manage five minutes and wind up with six. You don't manage information overload. Otherwise, you'd walk into a library and die, or the first time you connected to the web, you'd blow up. And you don't manage priorities. You have them. Instead, the key to managing all of your stuff is managing your actions. Managing action is the prime challenge. What you do with your time, what you do with information, and what you do with your body and your focus relative to your priorities those are the real options to which you must allocate your limited resources. The substantive issue is how to make appropriate choices about what to do at any point in time. The real work is to manage our actions. That may sound obvious. However, it might amaze you to discover how many next actions for how many projects and commitments remain undetermined by most people. It's extremely difficult to manage actions you haven't identified or decided on. Most people have dozens of things that they need to do to make progress on many fronts, but they don't yet know what they are. And the common complaint that, I don't have time to, fill in the blank, 
is understandable because many projects seem overwhelming and are overwhelming because you can't do a project at all. You can only do an action related to it. Many actions require only a minute or two in the appropriate context to move a project forward. In training and coaching many thousands of people, I have found that lack of time is not the major issue for them, though they may think it is. The real problem is a lack of clarity and definition about what a project really is and what associated next action steps are required. Clarifying things on the front end when they first appear on the radar rather than on the back end after trouble has developed allows people to reap the benefits of managing action. Getting things done requires two basic components. Defining, one, what done means, outcome, and two, what doing looks like, action. And these are far from self-evident for most people about most things that have their attention. The value of a bottom-up approach. I've discovered over the years the practical value of working on personal productivity improvement from the bottom up, starting with the most mundane, ground floor level of current activity and commitments. Intellectually, the most appropriate way ought to be to work from the top down, first uncovering personal and organizational purpose and vision, then defining critical objectives, and finally focusing on the details of implementation. The trouble is, however, that most people are so embroiled in commitments on a day-to-day -day level that their ability to focus successfully on the larger horizon is seriously impaired. Consequently, a bottom-up approach is usually more effective. Getting current on and in control of what's in your in-tray and on your mind right now and incorporating practices that you can trust will help you stay that way will provide the best means of broadening your horizons. A creative, buoyant energy will be unleashed that will better support your focus on new heights, and your confidence will increase to handle what that creativity produces. An immediate sense of freedom, release, and inspiration naturally comes to people who roll up their sleeves and implement this process. You'll be better equipped to undertake higher-focused thinking when your tools for handling the resulting actions for implementation are part of your ongoing operational style. There are more meaningful things to think about than your entry, but if your management of that level is not as efficient as it could be, it's like trying to swim in baggy clothing. Many executives I've worked with during the day to clear the decks of their mundane stuff have spent the evening having a stream of ideas and visions about their company and their future lifestyle. This happens as an automatic consequence of unsticking their workflow. Horizontal and Vertical Action Management you need to control commitments, projects, and actions in two ways, horizontally and vertically. Horizontal control maintains coherence across all the activities in which you're involved. Imagine your psyche constantly scanning your environment like a police radar. It may land on any of a thousand different items that invite or demand your attention during any 24-hour period. The drugstore, your daughter's boyfriend, the board meeting, your Aunt Martha, an incoming text message, the strategic plan, lunch, a wilting plant in the office, an upset customer, shoes that need shining. You need to buy stamps, figure out what to do about the presentation tomorrow, deposit that check, make the hotel reservation, cancel a meeting, and watch a movie tonight. You might be surprised at the volume of things you actually think about and have to deal with just in one day. You need a good system that can keep track of as many of them as possible, supply required information about them on demand, 
and allow you to shift your focus from one thing to the next quickly and easily. Vertical control, in contrast, manages thinking, development, and coordination of individual topics and projects. For example, your inner police radar lands on your next vacation as you and your life partner talk about it over dinner, where and when you'll go, what you'll do, how to prepare for the trip, and so on. Or you and your boss need to make some decisions about the new departmental reorganization you're about to launch. Or you just need to get your thinking up to date on the customer you're about to call. This is project planning in the broad sense. It's focusing in on a single endeavor, situation, or person and fleshing out whatever ideas, details, priorities, and sequences of events may be required for you to handle it, at least for the moment. The goal of managing horizontally and vertically is the same, to get things off your mind and get them done. Appropriate action management lets you feel comfortable and in control as you move through your broad spectrum of work and life, while appropriate project focusing gets you clear about and on track with the specifics needed. The major change, getting it all out of your head. There is no real way to achieve the kind of relaxed control I'm promising if you keep things only in your head. As you'll discover, the individual behaviors described in this book are things you're already doing. The big difference between what I do and what others do is that I capture and organize 100% of my stuff in and with objective tools at hand, not in my mind. And that applies to everything, little or big, personal or professional, urgent or not. Everything. Not exactly everything. Much of the time, my mind is simply grazing, noticing or thinking about things, and potentially maturing my awareness about something or other. I'm not writing down thousands of thoughts I have during the day. Almost all are complete in themselves. It's the ones that create some open loop in my psyche. A restaurant I read about I might want to try. An idea for possible content for the revision of this book. Something I thought of that I want to do for my wife. A question I have for my accountant, something to get at the hardware store, etc. I'm sure that at some time or other, you've gotten to a point in a project or in your life where you just had to sit down and make a list. Subsequently, you felt at least slightly more focused and in control. If so, you have a reference point for what I'm talking about. Nothing externally changed in your world, and yet you felt better about it. What did change significantly is how you were engaged with your world. That always happens when you get potentially meaningful things out of your head. Most people, however, do that kind of list-making drill only when the confusion gets too unbearable and they just have to do something about it. They usually, though, only make a list about the specific area that's bugging them. But if you made that kind of externalization and review a characteristic of your ongoing life and work style, and you maintained it across all areas of your life, not just the most urgent, you'd be practicing the kind of mind-like-water management style I'm describing. In my experience, this process always improves our perspective and our experience. Why wait? I try to make intuitive choices based on my options instead of trying to think about what those options are. I need to have thought about all of that already and captured the results in a trusted way. I don't want to waste time thinking about things more than once. That's an inefficient use of creative energy and a source of frustration and stress. And you can't fudge this thinking. Your mind will keep working on anything that's still in that undecided state. But that kind of recursive spinning in your mind 
has now been proven to reduce your capacity to think and perform, and there's a limit to how much unresolved stuff it can contain before it blows a fuse. The short-term memory part of your mind, the part that tends to hold all of the incomplete, undecided, and unorganized stuff, functions much like RAM, random access memory, on a computer. Your conscious mind, like the computer screen, is a focusing tool, not a storage place. You can think only about two or three things at once, but the incomplete items are still being stored in the short-term memory space. And, as with RAM, there's a limited capacity. There's only so much stuff you can store in there and still have that part of your brain function at a high level. Most people walk around with their RAM bursting at the seams. They're constantly distracted, their focus disturbed, and performance diminished by their own internal mental overload. Recent research in the cognitive sciences has now validated this conclusion. Studies have demonstrated that our mental processes are hampered by the burden put on the mind to keep track of things we're committed to finish without a trusted plan or system in place to handle them. An excellent book that covers this topic, and many others, is Willpower, Rediscovering the Greatest Human Strength, by Roy Baumeister and John Tierney, Penguin, 2011. For example, in the past few minutes, has your mind wandered off into some area that doesn't have anything to do with what you're hearing here? Probably. And most likely, where your mind went was to some open loop, some incomplete situation that you have an investment in. That situation merely reared up out of the RAM part of your brain and yelled at you internally. And what did you do about it? Unless you wrote it down and put it in a trusted collection tool that you know you'll review appropriately sometime soon, more than likely you worried, or at least reinforced some unresolved tension about it. Not the most effective behavior. No progress was made, and stress increased. A big problem is that your mind keeps reminding you of things when you can't do anything about them. It has no sense of past or future. That means as soon as you tell yourself that you might need to do something and store it only in your head, there's a part of you that thinks you should be doing that something all the time. Everything you've told yourself you ought to do, it thinks you should be doing right now. Frankly, as soon as you have two things to do stored only in your mind, you've generated personal failure because you can't do them both at the same time. This produces a pervasive stress factor whose source can't be pinpointed. Most people have been in some version of this mental stress state so consistently for so long that they don't even know they're in it. Like gravity, it's ever-present, so much so that those who experience it usually aren't even aware of the pressure. The only time most of them will realize how much tension they've been under is when they get rid of it and notice how different they feel. It's like the constant buzzing noise in a room you didn't know was there until it stops. Can you get rid of that kind of stress and noise? You bet. The rest of this book will explain how. Hello, listener. Thank you for listening to our content. Remember to follow us here on the platform. We prepared a graphic of the book with the author's key points and main ideas. Click that book graphic link in description now and have access to an illustrated material with simple and easy steps so you know everything about the book in minutes. Chapter 2. Getting Control of Your Life. The Five Steps of Mastering Workflow 
The core process for mastering the art of relaxed and controlled engagement is a five-step method for managing your workflow, the ever-present ingestion and expressions of our experiences. No matter what the setting, there are five discrete stages that we go through as we deal with our life, our work, and their consistent inputs and changes. Getting things under control, whether that's in your kitchen or in your company, will incorporate them. And each of these separate aspects has its own best practices and tools, and must work together with the rest as a whole to produce that wonderfully productive state of being present amid all the complexity. It's not simply about getting organized or setting priorities. Those are good things, but they happen as a result of applying these five steps, not by themselves. These procedures I will describe work together as a whole, and using them to produce results is both easier and more challenging than you may think. We, one, capture what has our attention. Two, clarify what each item means and what to do about it. Three, organize the results, which presents the options we, four, reflect on, which we then choose to, five, engage with. This constitutes the management of the horizontal aspect of our lives, incorporating everything that we need to consider at any time as we move forward moment to moment. These are not arbitrary or purely theoretical suggestions. They are what we all do any time we want to bring something under control and stabilize it for productive action. If you're planning to cook dinner for friends, but you come home and find the kitchen a total mess, how do you get on top of it? First, you identify all the stuff that doesn't belong where it is, the way it is. Capture. You then determine what to keep and what to throw away. Clarify. You put things where they need to go, back in the refrigerator, in the garbage, or in the sink. Organize. You then check your recipe book, along with the ingredients and utensils you have. Reflect. And you get started by putting butter in the pan to start melting. Engage. The method is straightforward enough in principle, and it is generally how we all go about our work in any case. But in my experience, most people can significantly improve their handling of each one of the five steps. The quality of our workflow management is only as good as the weakest link in this five-phase chain, so all the links must be integrated and supported with consistent standards. Most people have had major inefficiencies in their versions of this control process in the larger contexts of life and work, but the stresses of our new world are blowing out the weak spots. The ubiquity of information access and rapidity of change happening, as you listen to this, consistently increase the complexity of your life and work. Only having to deal with a messy kitchen would be a relief. Small leaks with added pressure become big ones. One missed email, untracked commitment, or decision avoided can have hugely magnified consequences. Because the volume of pertinent content is not diminishing or the input slowing down, avoiding getting a grip on the martial art of workflow mastery will be at your own peril. Most people have major weaknesses in their, one, capture process. Most of their commitments to do something are still in their head. The number of coulds, shoulds, might want tos and ought tos they generate in their minds are way out beyond what they have recorded anywhere else. Many have collected lots of things, but haven't, too, clarified exactly what they represent or decided what action, if any, to take about them. Random lists strewn everywhere, meeting notes, vague to-dos on post-its on their refrigerator or computer screens or in their tasks function in a digital tool, 
all lie not acted on and numbing to the psyche in their effect. Those lists alone often create more stress than they relieve. Others make good decisions about stuff in the moment, but lose the value of that thinking because they don't efficiently, three, organize the results. They determine they should talk to their boss about something, but a reminder of that lies only in the dark recesses of their mind, unavailable in the appropriate context, in a trusted format, when they could use it. Still others have good systems, but don't, for reflect on the contents consistently enough to keep them functional. They may have lists, plans, and various checklists available to them, created by capturing, clarifying, and organizing, but they don't keep them current or access them to their advantage. Many people don't look ahead at their own calendars consistently enough to stay current about upcoming events and deadlines, and they consequently become victims of last-minute craziness. Finally, if any one of these previous links is weak, what someone is likely to choose to, five, engage in at any point in time may not be the best option. Most decisions for action and focus are driven by the latest and loudest inputs and are based on hope instead of trust. People have a constant nagging sense that they're not working on what they should be, that they don't have time for potentially critical activities, and that they're missing out on the timeless sense of meaningful doing that is the essence of stress-free productivity. The dynamics of these five steps need to be understood, and good techniques and tools implemented to facilitate their functioning at an optimal level. I found it very helpful, if not essential, to separate these stages as I move through my day. There are times when I want only to collect input and not decide what to do with it yet. At other times, I may just want to process my notes from a meeting. Or I may have just returned from a big trip and need to distribute and organize what I collected and processed on the road. Then there are times when I want to review the whole inventory of my work, or some portion of it. And obviously a lot of my time is spent merely doing something that I need to get done. I have discovered that one of the major reasons many people haven't had a lot of success with getting organized is simply that they have tried to do all five steps at one time. Most, when they sit down to make a list, are trying to collect the most important things in some order that reflects priorities and sequences without setting out many or any real actions to take. But if you don't decide what needs to be done about your assistant's birthday because it's not that important right now, that open loop will take up energy and prevent you from having a totally effective, clear focus on what's important. This chapter explains the five steps in detail. Chapters 4 through 8 provide a step-by-step -step program for implementing an airtight system for each phase with lots of examples and best practices. Capture it's important to know what needs to be captured and how to do that most effectively so you can process it appropriately. In order for your mind to let go of the lower-level task of trying to hang on to everything, you have to know that you have truly captured everything that might represent something you have to do or at least decide about, and that at some point in the near future, you will process and review all of it. Gathering 100% of the incompletes In order to eliminate holes in your bucket, you need to collect and gather placeholders for, or representations of, all of the things you consider incomplete in your world. That is, anything personal or professional, big or little, of urgent or minor importance, that you think ought to be different than it currently is, and that you have any level of internal commitment to changing. 
Many of the things you have to do are being collected for you as you listen to this. Mail is coming into your various mailboxes, physical and virtual. You're likely still getting packages and letters at home. Physical stuff is still landing in your in-tray at work, along with email, texts, and voicemails into your digital tools. But at the same time, you've been capturing things in your environment and in your head that don't belong where they are, the way they are, for all eternity. Even though it may not be as obviously in your face as your email, the stuff still requires some kind of resolution, a loop to be closed, something to be done. Strategy ideas loitering in a notebook, dead gadgets in your desk drawers that need to be fixed or thrown away, and out-of-date magazines on your coffee table all fall into this category of stuff. As soon as you attach a should, need to, or ought to to an item, it becomes an incomplete. Decisions you still need to make about whether or not you're going to do something, for example, are already incompletes. This includes all of your I'm going to's in which you've decided to do something but haven't started moving on it yet. And it certainly includes all pending and in-progress items, as well as those things on which you've done everything you're ever going to do except acknowledge that you're finished with them. In order to manage this inventory of open loops appropriately, you need to capture it into containers that hold items in abeyance until you have a few moments to decide what they are and what, if anything, you're going to do about them. Then you must empty these containers regularly to ensure that they remain viable capture tools. Basically, everything potentially meaningful to you is already being collected in the larger sense. If it's not being directly managed in a trusted external system of yours, then it's resident somewhere in your mental space. The fact that you haven't put an item in your in-tray doesn't mean you haven't got it. But we're talking here about making sure everything you need is collected somewhere other than in your head. The Capture Tools There are several types of tools, both low and high-tech, that can be used to collect your incompletes. The following can all serve as versions of an in-tray, capturing self-generated input, as well as information from external sources. Physical in-tray paper-based note-taking devices, digital audio note-taking devices, email and text messaging. The physical in-tray. The standard plastic, wood, leather, or wire tray has for years been the most common tool for collecting paper-based and physical materials that need some sort of processing. Mail, magazines, meeting notes, corporate reports, tickets, receipts, flash drives, business cards, even flashlights with dead batteries. Writing paper and pads. Loose leaf and bound notebooks, note cards, and paper pads of all shapes and sizes work fine for collecting random ideas, input, things to do, and so on. Whatever fits your taste and logistical needs. Digital and voice note-taking. Computers, tablets, smartphones, and all kinds of new mobile tech gadgetry emerging daily can be used for capturing notes for later processing, preserving an interim record of things you need to remember to deal with. Email and texting. If you're wired to the rest of the world through email and texting, your software contains some sort of holding area for incoming messages and files, where they can be stored until they're viewed, read, processed. Technology Integration The evolution of the digital world has made it increasingly possible to integrate these various channels automatically. 
Written notes from paper and whiteboards can be instantly recorded, recognized, and funneled into software storage. Voice messages can be recorded, digitized, and printed out. You can text an idea to your email from your mobile device. Whether high-tech or low-tech, all of the tools and functions I've described serve similarly as in-trays, capturing potentially meaningful information, commitments, ideas, and agreements for action. The Success Factors for Capturing Unfortunately, merely having an in-tray doesn't make it functional. Most people do have collection devices of some sort, but usually they're more or less out of control or seriously underutilized. Let's examine the three requirements to make the capturing phase work. 1. Every open loop must be in your capture system and out of your head. 2. You must have as few capturing buckets as you can get by with. 3. You must empty them regularly. Get it all out of your head. If you're still trying to keep track of too many things in your mental space, you likely won't be motivated to use and empty your in-trays with integrity. Most people are relatively careless about these tools because they know they don't represent discrete whole systems anyway. There's an incomplete set of things in their in-tray and an incomplete set in their mind, and they're not getting a real payoff from either one, so their thinking goes. It's like trying to play pinball on a machine that has big holes in the table so the balls keep falling out. There's little motivation to keep playing the game. These collection tools should become part of your lifestyle. Keep them close by so no matter where you are, you can collect a potentially valuable thought. Think of them as being as indispensable as your toothbrush or your driver's license or your glasses. The sense of trust that nothing possibly useful will get lost will give you the freedom to have many more good ideas. Minimize the number of capture locations. You should have as many in-trays as you need and as few as you can get by with. You need this function to be available to you in every context, since things you'll want to capture may show up almost anywhere. If you have too many collection zones, however, you won't be able to process them easily or consistently. An excess of collection buckets can easily happen in both the low-tech and high-tech arenas. There is a real improvement opportunity for most people on the low-tech side, primarily in the areas of note-taking and physical in-tray collection. Written notes need to be corralled and processed instead of left lying embedded in stacks, notebooks, and drawers. Paper and physical materials need to be funneled into physical in-trays instead of being scattered over myriad piles in all the available corners of the world. On the high-tech side, potential sources of input for stuff to be assessed and processed have proliferated tremendously with the advent of social media, multiple connected devices, and the ubiquity of email. People now often have more than one email account, are participating in at least one if not several social media worlds, and operate with numerous digital devices. Paradoxically, the tendency to accumulate a huge backlog of random inputs to deal with and the number of people troubled with that have increased dramatically as the digital revolution has streamlined our lives. Implementing standard tools and procedures for capturing ideas and input will become more and more critical as your life and work become more sophisticated. As you proceed in your career, for instance, you'll probably notice that your best ideas about work will not come to you at work. The ability to leverage that thinking with good collection devices that are always at hand is key to staying on top of your world. Empty the capture tools regularly.
The final success factor for capturing should be obvious. If you don't empty and process the stuff you've collected, your tools aren't serving any function other than the storage of amorphous material. Emptying the contents does not mean that you have to finish what's there. It just means that you have to decide more specifically what it is and what should be done with it, and if it's still unfinished, organize it into your system. You must get it out of the container. You don't leave it or put it back into in. Not emptying your in-tray is like having garbage cans and mailboxes that no one ever dumps or deals with. You just have to keep buying new ones to hold an eternally accumulating volume. In order to get in to empty, however, an integrated life management system must be in place. Too much stuff is left piled in in-trays, physical and digital, because of a lack of effective systems downstream from there. It often seems easier to leave things in in when you know you have to do something about them but can't do it right then. The in-tray, especially for paper and email, is the best that many people can do in terms of organization. At least they know that somewhere in there is a reminder of something they still have to do. Unfortunately, that safety net is lost when the piles get out of control or the inventory of emails gets too extensive to be viewed on one screen. When you master the next two steps and know how to process and organize your inputs and incompletes easily and rapidly, in can return to its original function. Let's move on to how to get those in-trays and email systems empty without necessarily having to do the work now. Clarify. Teaching them the item-by-item -item thinking required to get their collection containers empty is perhaps the most critical improvement I've made for virtually all the people I've worked with. When the head of a major department in a global corporation had finished processing all her open items with me, she sat back in awe and told me that, though she had been able to relax about what meetings to go to thanks to her trust in her calendar, she had never felt that same relief about all the many other aspects of her job, which we had just clarified together. The actions and information she needed to be reminded of were now identified and entrusted to a concrete system. What do you need to ask yourself and answer about each email, text, voicemail, memo, page of meeting notes, or self-generated idea that comes your way. This is the component of input management that forms the basis for your personal organization. Many people try to get organized, but make the mistake of doing it with incomplete batches of stuff. You can't organize what's incoming. You can only capture it and process it. Instead, you organize the actions you'll need to take based on the decisions you've made about what needs to be done. What is it? This is not a dumb question. We've talked about stuff, and we've talked about collection buckets, but we haven't discussed what stuff is and what to do about it. For example, many of the items that tend to leak out of our personal organizing systems are amorphous forms that we receive from the government or from our company. Do we actually need to do something about them? And what about that email from Human Resources, letting us know that blah blah about the blah blah is now the policy of blah blah? I've unearthed piles of messages in stacks and desk drawers that were tossed there because the client didn't take just a few seconds to figure out what, in fact, the communication or document was really about. Which is why the next decision is critical. Is it actionable? There are two possible answers for this. Yes and no. No action required. 
If the answer is no, there are three possibilities. One, it's trash, no longer needed. Two, no action is needed now, but something might need to be done later. Incubate. Three, the item is potentially useful information that might be needed for something later. Reference. These three categories can themselves be managed. We'll get into that in a later chapter. For now, suffice it to say that you need a wastebasket and delete key for trash, a tickler file or calendar for material that's incubating, and a good filing system for reference information. Actionable. This is the yes group of items, stuff about which something needs to be done. Typical examples range from an email requesting a summary of the speech you've agreed to give at a luncheon, to the notes in your in-tray from your face-to-face -face meeting with the group vice president about a significant new project that involves hiring an outside consultant. Two things need to be determined about each actionable item. One, what project or outcome have you committed to? And two, what's the next action required? If it's about a project, you need to capture that outcome on a projects list. That will be the stake in the ground that will keep reminding you that you have an open loop until it is finished. A weekly review of the list will bring this item back to you as something that's still outstanding. More on this later. It will stay fresh and alive in your management system versus your head until it is completed or eliminated. What's the next action? This is the critical question for anything you've captured. If you answer it appropriately, you'll have the key substantive thing to organize. The next action is the next physical, visible activity that needs to be engaged in in order to move the current reality of this thing toward completion. Some of the next actions might be Call Fred regarding the name and number of the repair shop he mentioned. Draft thoughts for the budget meeting agenda. Talk to Angela about the filing system we need to set up. Research the Internet for local watercolor classes. These are all real physical activities that need to happen. Reminders of these will become the primary grist for the mill of your personal productivity management system. Do it, delegate it, or defer it. Once you've decided on the next action, you have three options. 1. Do it. If an action will take less than two minutes, it should be done at the moment it is defined. 2. Delegate it. If the action will take longer than two minutes, ask yourself, am I the right person to do this? If the answer is no, delegate it to the appropriate entity. 3. Defer it. If the action will take longer than two minutes and you are the right person to do it, you will have to defer acting on it until later and track it on one or more next actions lists. Organize. There are eight discrete categories of reminders and materials that will result from your processing all your stuff. Together, they make up a total system for organizing just about everything that's on your plate or could be added to it on a daily and weekly basis. For non-actionable items, the possible categories are trash, incubation, and reference. If no action is needed on something, you toss it, tickle it for later reassessment, or file it so you can find the material if you need to refer to it at another time. To manage actionable things, you'll need a list of projects, storage or files for project plans and materials, 
a calendar, a list of reminders of next actions, and a list of reminders of things you're waiting for. All of the organizational categories need to be physically contained in some form. When I refer to lists, I just mean some sort of reviewable set of reminders, which could be lists on notebook paper or in some computer program, or even file folders holding separate pieces of paper for each item. For instance, the list of current projects could be kept on a page in a loose-leaf planner. It could be held in a category within the tasks function of a software application, or it could be in a simple physical file folder labeled projects list. Incubating reminders, such as after March 1st, contact my accountant to set up a meeting, may be stored in a paper-based tickler or bring-forward file or in a digital calendar application. Projects. I define a project as any desired result that can be accomplished within a year that requires more than one action step. This means that some rather small things you might not normally call projects are going to be on your projects list, as well as some big ones. The reasoning behind my definition is that if one step won't complete something, some kind of goalpost needs to be set up to remind you that there's something still left to do. If you don't have a placeholder to remind you about it, it will slip back into your head. The reason for the one-year time frame is that anything you're committed to finish within that scope needs to be reviewed weekly to feel comfortable about its status. Another way to think of this is as a list of open loops, no matter what the size. A partial projects list. Get new staff person on board. Take August holiday. Produce staff off-site retreat. Publish book. Finalize computer upgrades. Update will. Finalize budgets. Finalize new product offering. Learn new CRM software. Get reprints of HBR article. Get a publicist. Plant spring garden. Research resources for video project. Establish next year's conference schedule. Finalize employment agreements. Install new porch lighting. Get a new kitchen table. Enroll Maria in middle school. Projects do not initially need to be listed in any particular order, by size, or by priority. They just need to be on a master list so you can review them regularly enough to ensure that appropriate next actions have been defined for each of them. You don't actually do a project. You can only do action steps related to it. When enough of the right action steps have been taken, some situation will have been created that matches your initial picture of the outcome closely enough that you can call it done. The list of projects is the compilation of finish lines we put before us to keep our next actions moving on all tracks appropriately. There may be reasons to sort your projects into different subcategories based upon different areas of your focus, but initially creating a single list of all of them will make it easier to customize your system appropriately as you get more comfortable with its usage. Project Support Material for many of your projects, you will accumulate relevant information that you will want to organize by theme or topic or project name. Your projects list will be merely an index. All of the details, plans, and supporting information that you may need as you work on your various projects should be contained in separate file folders, computer files, notebooks, or binders. 
support materials, and reference files. Once you have organized your project support material by theme or topic, you will probably find that it is almost identical to your reference material and could be kept in the same reference file system. A wedding file could be kept in the general reference files, for instance. The only difference is that in the case of active projects, support material may need to be reviewed on a more consistent basis to ensure that all the necessary action steps are identified. I usually recommend that people store their support materials out of sight. If you have a good working reference file system close enough at hand, you may find that that's the simplest way to organize them. There will be times, though, when it'll be more convenient to have the materials out and instantly in view and available, especially if you're working on a hot project that you need to check references for several times during the day. File folders in wire standing holders or in stackable trays within easy reach can be practical for this kind of pending paperwork. The digital world has paradoxically made organizing reference and support materials simultaneously simpler and more complex. It's quick and easy to capture something from somewhere and copy it somewhere else, but deciding where it goes can be daunting given the plethora of parking places available to us and the myriad ways that we might want the information available to others as well as ourselves. The best practice is to keep your digital reference world as simple as possible and consistently reviewed and purged. The Next Action Categories The next action decision is central. That action needs to be the next physical, visible behavior, without exception, on every open loop. Any less than two-minute actions that you perform, and all other actions that have already been completed, do not, of course, need to be tracked. They're done. What does need to be tracked is every action that has to happen at a specific time or on a specific day. Enter those on your calendar. Those that need to be done as soon as they can, add these to your next actions lists. And all those that you are waiting for others to do, put these on a waiting for list. Calendar. Reminders of actions you need to take fall into two categories. Those about things that have to happen on a specific day or time, and those about things that just need to get done as soon as possible. Your calendar handles the first type of reminder. Three things go on your calendar. Time-specific actions, day-specific actions, and day-specific information. Time-specific actions. This is a fancy name for appointments. Often the next action to be taken on a project is attending a meeting that has been set up to discuss it. Simply tracking that on the calendar is sufficient. Day-specific actions. These are things that you need to do sometime on a certain day, but not necessarily at a specific time. Perhaps you told Miyoko you would call her on Friday to check that the report you're sending her is okay. She won't have the report until Thursday, and she's leaving the country on Saturday, so Friday is the time window for taking the action, but any time Friday will be fine. That should be tracked on the calendar for Friday, but not tied to any particular time slot. It should just go on the day. It's useful to have a calendar on which you can note both time-specific and day-specific actions. Day-specific information. The calendar is also the place to keep track of things you want to know about on specific days, not necessarily actions you'll have to take, but rather information that may be useful on a certain date. 
This might include directions for appointments, activities that other people, family, or staff will be involved in then, or events of interest. It's helpful to put short-term tickler information here, too, such as a reminder to call someone after he or she returns from vacation. This is also where you would want to park important reminders about when something might be due or when something needs to be started, in case it hasn't been yet, given a determined lead time. No more daily to-do lists on the calendar. Those three things are what go on the calendar and nothing else. This might be heresy to past-century time management training, which almost universally taught that the daily to-do list is key. But such lists embedded on a calendar don't work, for two reasons. First, constant new input and shifting tactical priorities reconfigure daily work so consistently that it's virtually impossible to nail down to-do items ahead of time. Having a working game plan as a reference point is always useful, but it must be able to be renegotiated at any moment. Trying to keep a list on the calendar, which must then be re-entered on another day if items don't get done, is demoralizing and a waste of time. The next actions lists I advocate will hold all of those action reminders, even the most time-sensitive ones, and they won't have to be rewritten daily. Second, if there's something on a daily to-do list that doesn't absolutely have to get done that day, it will dilute the emphasis on the things that truly do. If I have to call Miyoko on Friday because that's the only day I can reach her, but then I add five other less important or less time-sensitive calls to my to-do list, when the day gets crazy, I may never call Miyoko. My brain will have to take back the reminder that that's the one phone call I won't get another chance at. That's not utilizing the system appropriately. The way I look at it, the calendar should be sacred territory. If you write something there, it must get done that day or not at all. The only rewriting should be for changed appointments. That said, there's absolutely nothing wrong with creating a quick, informal, short list of if I have time, I'd really like to, kinds of things, picked from your next action's inventory. It just should not be confused with your have-tos, and it should be treated lightly enough to discard or change quickly as the inevitable surprises of the day unfold. The Next Actions Lists So where do your entire action reminders go? On Next Actions Lists which, along with the calendar, are at the heart of daily action management organization and orientation. Any longer-than-two-minute, non-delegatable action you have identified needs to be tracked somewhere. Call Jim Smith regarding the budget meeting. Email family update to friends. And draft ideas regarding the annual sales conference are all the kinds of action reminders that need to be kept in appropriate lists to be assessed as options for what we will do at any point in time. If you have only 20 or 30 of these, it might be fine to keep them all on one list labeled Next Actions, which you'll review whenever you have any free time. For most of us, however, the number is more likely to be 50 to 150. In that case, it makes sense to subdivide your Next Actions list into categories, such as calls to make when you have a window of time and your phone, or computer action items to see as options when you're at that device. Non-actionable items. You need well-organized, discrete systems to handle things that require no action, as well as those that do. No-action systems fall into three categories. Trash, 
incubation, and reference. Trash Trash should be self-evident. Throw away, shred, or recycle anything that has no potential future action or reference value. If you leave this stuff mixed in with other categories, it will seriously undermine the system and your clarity in the environment. Incubation there are two other groups of things besides trash that require no immediate action, but that you will want to keep. Here again, it's critical that you separate non-actionable from actionable items. Otherwise, you will tend to go numb to your piles, stacks, and lists, and not know where to start or what needs to be done. Say you read something in a newsletter that gives you an idea for a project you might want to do someday, but not now. You'll want to be reminded of it again later so you can reassess the option of doing something about it in the future. Or you get a notice about the upcoming season of your local symphony, and you see that the program that really interests you is still four months away. Too distant for you to move on it yet. You're not sure what your travel schedule will be that far out. But if you are in town, you'd like to go. What should you do about that? There are two kinds of incubation tools that could work for this kind of thing. Someday Maybe lists, and a tickler system. Someday Maybe It can be useful and inspiring to maintain an ongoing list of things you might want to do at some point, but not now. This is the parking lot for projects that would be impossible to move on at present, but that you don't want to forget about entirely. You'd like to be reminded of the possibility at regular intervals. Typical Partial Someday Maybe list Get a sailboat. Learn Spanish. Take a watercolor class. Renovate the kitchen. Build a lap pool. Take a balloon ride. Build a wine cellar. Spend a month in Tuscany. Create my own web page. Set up a foundation for kids. Get a piano. Publish my memoir. Get scuba certification. Learn to tango. Learn to throw pottery. Give a neighborhood party. Build a koi pond. These items are of the nature of projects I might want to do but not now, but I'd like to be reminded of them regularly. You must review this list periodically if you're going to get the most value from it. I suggest you include a scan of the contents in your weekly review. We'll talk about this shortly. You'll probably have some other types of information that are similar to Someday Maybe, but that probably need a review only when you have an urge to engage in a particular kind of activity. These would be lists such as books to read, wines to taste, recipes to try, movies to rent, weekend trips to take, things my kids might like to do, seminars to take, websites to surf. These kinds of reminders can greatly expand your options for creative exploration. Having an organizational tool that allows you to easily make lists such as these, ad hoc, is quite worthwhile. Tickler System A second type of things to incubate are those you don't want or need to be reminded of until some designated time in the future. A most elegant version of holding for review of this nature is the tickler file sometimes also referred to as a suspense, follow-on, or perpetual file. This is a system that allows you to almost literally mail something to yourself for receipt on some designated date in the future. Your calendar can serve the same function, 
You might remind yourself on your calendar for March 15th, for example, that your taxes are due in a month. Or for September 12th, that Swan Lake will be presented by the Bolshoi at the Civic Auditorium in six weeks. For further details, refer to Chapter 7. Reference Material Many things that come your way require no action but have intrinsic value as information. You will want to keep and be able to retrieve these as needed. They can be stored in paper-based or digital form. Paper-based material, anything from the menu for a local takeout deli to the plans, drawings, and vendor information for a landscape project, is best stored in efficient physical or digital retrieval systems. These can range from pages in a loose-leaf planner or notebook for a list of favorite restaurants, or the phone numbers of members of a school committee, to whole file cabinets dedicated to the due diligence paperwork for a corporate merger. Though more and more information is showing up in digital form, print versions are at times still an effective way for it to be stored and reviewed. Electronic storage can include everything from cloud-based data storage to archive folders in your communications software. The most important thing to remember here is that reference should be exactly that, information that can be easily referred to when required. Reference systems generally take two forms. One, topic and area-specific storage, and two, general reference files. The first types usually define themselves in terms of how they are stored. For example, a file drawer dedicated to contracts by date. A drawer containing only confidential employee compensation information a series of cabinets for closed legal cases that might need to be consulted for future trials, or a customer relations management, CRM, database for client and prospect histories. General Reference Filing The second type of reference system is one that everyone needs close at hand for storing ad hoc information that doesn't belong in some pre-designed larger category. You need somewhere to keep the instruction manuals for your kitchenware, the handwritten notes from your meeting about the Smith project, and those yen you didn't get to exchange at the end of your most recent trip to Tokyo, and that you can use when you go back there. The lack of a good general reference file can be one of the biggest bottlenecks in implementing an efficient personal management system. If filing and storing isn't easy and fast, and even fun, you'll tend to stack, pile, or digitally accumulate things instead of putting them away appropriately. If your reference material doesn't have nice, clean edges to it, the line between actionable and non-actionable items will blur, visually and psychologically, and your mind will go numb to the whole business. Establishing a good working system for this category of material is critical to ensuring stress-free productivity. We will explore it in detail in Chapter 7. Reflect It's one thing to write down that you need milk, it's another to be at the store and remember it. Likewise, writing down that you need to call a friend to find out how he's doing after a significant event in his life and wish him well is different from remembering it when you're at a phone and have some discretionary time. You need to be able to step back and review the whole picture of your life and work from a broader perspective as well as drop down into the weeds of concrete actions to take as needed and at appropriate intervals. For most people, the magic of workflow management is realized in the consistent use of the reflection step. This is where, in one important case, you take a look at all your outstanding projects and open loops at what I call Horizon 1 level, 
on a weekly basis. It's your chance to scan all the defined actions and options before you, thus radically increasing the efficacy of the choices you make about what you're doing at any point in time. Your life is more complex than any single system can describe or coordinate, but the GTD methodology creates a coherent model for placeholding key elements which still require attention, being kept current, and being reviewed in a coordinated way. Most people have some simple components of this in various places, but the contents and the utilization of these are elementary at best. What to review when? If you set up a personal organization system structured as I recommend, with a projects list, a calendar, next actions lists, and a waiting for list, not much will be required to maintain that system. The item you'll probably review most frequently is your calendar, which will remind you about the hard landscape for the day, that is, what things truly have to be handled that day. This doesn't mean that the contents there are the most important in some grand sense, only that they must get done. At any point in time, knowing what has to get done and when creates a terrain for maneuvering. It's a good habit as soon as you conclude an action on your calendar, a meeting, a phone call, the final draft of a report that's due, to check and see what else remains to be done. After checking your calendar, you'll most often turn to your next action lists. These hold the inventory of predefined actions that you can take if you have any discretionary time during the day. If you've organized them by context, at home, at computer, in meeting with George, they'll come into play only when those contexts are available. Projects, waiting for, and someday maybe lists need to be reviewed only as often as you think they have to be in order to stop you from wondering about them. Critical Success Factor The Weekly Review Everything that might require action must be reviewed on a frequent enough basis to keep your mind from taking back the job of remembering and reminding. In order to trust the rapid and intuitive judgment calls that you make about actions from moment to moment, you must consistently retrench at some more elevated level. In my experience, with thousands of people, that translates into a behavior critical for success. The weekly review. All of your projects, active project plans, and next actions, agendas, waiting for, and even someday maybe lists, should be reviewed once a week. This also gives you an opportunity to ensure that your brain is clear and that all the loose strands of the past few days have been captured, clarified, and organized. If you're like most people, you've found that things can get relatively out of control during the course of a few days of operational intensity. That's to be expected, but it will continue to increase in tandem with the ubiquity of your always-on, connected world. You wouldn't want to distract yourself from too much of the work at hand in an effort to stay totally squeaky clean all the time. But in order to afford the luxury of getting on a roll with confidence, you'll probably need to clean house and refresh the contents once a week. The weekly review is the time to gather and process all your stuff, review your system, update your lists, get clean, clear, current, and complete. Most people don't have a really complete system, and they get no real payoff from reviewing things for just that reason. Their overview isn't total. They still have a vague sense that something may be missing. That's why the rewards to be gained from implementing this whole process are exponential. The more complete the system is, 
the more you'll trust it. And the more you trust it, the more complete you'll be motivated to keep it. The weekly review is a master key to maintaining that standard. Most people feel best about their work the week before they go on vacation, but it's not because of the vacation itself. What do you do the last week before you leave on a big trip? You clean up, close up, clarify, organize, and renegotiate all your agreements with yourself and others. You do this so you can relax and be present on the beach, on the golf course, or on the slopes, with nothing else on your mind. I suggest you do this weekly instead of yearly, so you can bring this kind of being present to your everyday life. Engage. The basic purpose of this workflow management process is to facilitate good choices about what you're doing at any point in time. At 10.33 a.m. Monday, deciding whether to call Sandy, finish the proposal, or clean up your emails will always be an intuitive call, but with the proper orientation, you can feel much more confident about your choices. You can move from hope to trust in your actions, immediately increasing your energy and effectiveness. Three models for making action choices. Let's assume for a moment that you're not resisting any of your stuff out of insecurity or procrastination. There will always be a long list of actions that you are not doing at any given moment. So how will you decide what to do and what not to do and feel good about both? The answer is by trusting your intuition. If you have captured, clarified, organized, and reflected on all your current commitments, you can galvanize your intuitive judgment with some intelligent and practical thinking about your work and values. There are three models that will be helpful for you to incorporate in your decision-making about what to do. They won't tell you answers, whether you call Mario, email your son at school, or just have an informal conversation with your secretary, but they will assist you in framing your options more intelligently. And that's something that the simple time and priority management panaceas can't do. 1. The Four Criteria Model for Choosing Actions in the Moment At 3.22 on Wednesday, how do you choose what to do? At that moment, there are four criteria you can apply in this order. Context, time available, energy available, and priority. The first three describe the constraints within which you continually operate, and the fourth provides the hierarchical values to ascribe to your actions. Context. You are always constrained by what you have the capability to do at this time. A few actions can be done anywhere, such as drafting ideas about a project with pen and paper, but most require a specific location, at home, at your office, or having some productivity tool at hand, such as a phone or a computer. These are the first factors that limit your choices about what you can do in the moment. Time available. When do you have to do something else? Having a meeting in five minutes would prevent doing any actions that require more time. Energy available. How much energy do you have? Some actions you have to do require a reservoir of fresh creative mental energy. Others need more physical horsepower. Some need very little of either. Priority. Given your context, time, and energy available, what action remaining of your options will give you the highest payoff? You're in your office with a phone and a computer, you have an hour, and your energy is 7.3 on a scale of 10. 
Should you call the client back, work on the proposal, process your emails, or check in with your spouse to see how his or her day is going? This is where you need to access your intuition and begin to rely on your judgment call in the moment. To explore that concept further, let's examine two more models for deciding what's most important for you to be doing. 2. The Threefold Model for Identifying Daily Work When you're getting things done, or working in the universal sense, there are three different kinds of activities you can be engaged in. Doing predefined work, doing work as it shows up, defining your work. Doing predefined work. When you're doing predefined work, you're working from your next actions lists and calendar, completing tasks that you have previously determined need to be done, or managing your workflow. You're making the calls you need to make, drafting ideas you want to brainstorm, attending meetings, or preparing a list of things to talk to your attorney about. Doing work as it shows up. Often things come up ad hoc, unsuspected, unforeseen, that you either have to or choose to engage in as they occur. For example, your partner walks into your office and wants to have a conversation about the new product launch. So you talk to her instead of doing all the other things you could be doing. Every day brings surprises, unplanned for things that just show up, and you'll need to expend at least some time and energy on many of them. When you follow these leads, you're deciding by default that these things are more important than anything else you have to do at those times. Defining your work. Defining your work entails clearing up your in-tray, your digital messages, and your meeting notes, and breaking down new projects into actionable steps. As you process your inputs, you'll no doubt be taking care of some less-than-two-minute actions and tossing and filing numerous things, another version of doing work as it shows up. A good portion of this activity will consist of identifying things that need to get done sometime, but not right away. You'll be adding to all of your lists as you go along. Once you've defined all of your work, you can trust that your lists of things to do are complete and your context, time, and energy available still allow you the option of more than one thing to do. The final thing to consider is the nature of your work and its goals and standards. 3. The Six-Level Model for Reviewing Your Own Work Priorities should drive your choices, but most models for determining them are not reliable tools for much of our real work activity. In order to know what your priorities are, you have to know what your work is. And there are at least six different perspectives from which to define that. To use an appropriate analogy, the conversation has a lot to do with the horizon or distance of perception. Looking out from a building, you will notice different things from different floors. Horizon 5. Purpose and principles. Horizon 4. Vision. Horizon 3. Goals. Horizon 2. Areas of Focus and Accountabilities Horizon 1 Current Projects Ground Current Actions Let's start from the bottom up. Ground Current Actions This is the accumulated list of all the actions you need to take, all the phone calls you have to make, the emails you have to respond to, the errands you've got to run, and the agendas you want to communicate to your boss and your life partner. You'd probably have more than a hundred of these items to handle if you stopped the world right now with no more input from yourself or anyone else. Horizon 1. 
current projects. Generating most of the actions that you currently have in front of you are the 30 to 100 projects on your plate. These are the relatively short-term outcomes you want to achieve, such as setting up a new home computer, organizing a sales conference, moving to a new headquarters, and getting a dentist. Horizon 2. Areas of Focus and Accountabilities You create or accept your projects and actions because of the roles, interests, and accountabilities you have. These are the key areas of your life and work within which you want to achieve results and maintain standards. Your job may entail at least implicit commitments for things like strategic planning, administrative support, staff development, market research, customer service, or asset management. And your personal life has an equal number of such focused arenas. Health, family, finances, home environment, spirituality, recreation, etc. These are not things to finish, but rather to use as criteria for assessing our experiences and our engagements to maintain balance and sustainability as we operate in our work and our world. Listing and reviewing these responsibilities gives a more comprehensive framework for evaluating your inventory of projects. Horizon 3. Goals. What do you want to be experiencing in various areas of your life and work one to two years from now will add another dimension to defining your work. Often, meeting the goals and objectives of your job will require a shift in emphasis of your job focus, with new accountabilities emerging. At this horizon personally, too, there probably are things you'd like to accomplish or have in place which could add importance to certain aspects of your life and diminish others. Horizon 4. Vision. Projecting three to five years into the future generates thinking about bigger categories, organization strategies, environmental trends, career and lifestyle transition circumstances. Internal factors include longer-term career, family, financial, and quality-of-life aspirations and considerations. Outer-world issues could involve changes affecting your job and organization, such as technology, globalization, market trends, and competition. Decisions at this altitude could easily change what your work might look like on many levels. Horizon 5. Purpose and Principles This is the big picture view. Why does your company exist? Why do you exist? What really matters to you, no matter what? The primary purpose for anything provides the core definition of what the work really is. It is the ultimate job description. All goals, visions, objectives, projects, and actions derive from this and lead toward it. These horizon analogies are somewhat arbitrary, and in real life, the important conversations you will have about your focus and your priorities may not exactly fit one level or another. They can provide a useful framework, however, to remind you of the multi-layered nature of your commitments and tasks. Obviously, many factors must be considered before you feel comfortable that you've made the best decision about what to do and when. Setting priorities, in the traditional sense of focusing on your long-term goals and values, though obviously a necessary core focus, does not provide a practical framework for a vast majority of the decisions and tasks you must engage in day-to-day. Mastering the flow of your work at all the levels you experience that work provides a much more holistic way to get things done and feel good about it. 
Part two of this book will provide specific coaching about how to use these models for making action choices and how the best practices for capturing, clarifying, planning, organizing, and reflecting all contribute to your greatest success with them. Hello, listener. Thank you for listening to our content. Remember to follow us here on the platform. We prepared a graphic of the book with the author's key points and main ideas. Click that book graphic link in description now and have access to an illustrated material with simple and easy steps so you know everything about the book in minutes. Chapter 3. Getting Projects Creatively Underway the five phases of project planning. The key ingredients of relaxed control are one, clearly defined outcomes, projects, and the next actions required to move them toward closure. And two, reminders placed in a trusted system that is reviewed regularly. This is what I call horizontal focus. Although it may seem simple, the actual application of the process can create profound results. Enhancing Vertical Focus Horizontal focus is all you'll need in most situations most of the time. Sometimes, however, you may need greater rigor and focus to get a project or situation under control, to identify a solution, or to ensure that all the right steps have been determined. This is where vertical focus comes in. Knowing how to think productively in this more vertical way and how to integrate the results into your personal system is the second powerful behavior set needed for knowledge work. This kind of thinking doesn't have to be elaborate. Most of the thinking you'll need to do is informal, what I call back-of-the-envelope planning, the kind of thing you do literally on the back of an envelope or napkin in a coffee shop with a colleague as you're hashing out the agenda and structure of a sales presentation. In my experience, this tends to be the most productive kind of planning you can do in terms of your output relative to the energy you put into it. True, once in a while, everyone may need to develop a more formal structure or plan to clarify components, sequences, or priorities. And more detailed outlines will also be necessary to coordinate more complex situations. If teams need to collaborate about various project pieces, for example, or if business plans need to be drafted to convince an investor you know what you're doing. But as a general rule, you can be pretty creative with nothing more than a pen and a piece of paper. The greatest need I've seen in project thinking in the professional world is not for more formal models. Usually the people who need those models already have them or can get them as part of an academic or professional curriculum. Instead, i found the biggest gap to be the lack of a project-focusing model for the rest of us. We need ways to validate and support our thinking, no matter how informal. Formal planning sessions and high-horsepower planning tools, such as project management software, can certainly be useful at times, but too often the participants in a meeting will need to have another meeting, a back-of-the-envelope or whiteboard session, to actually get a piece of the work fleshed out and under control. More formal and structured meetings also tend to skip over at least one critical issue, such as why the project is being done in the first place. Or they don't allow adequate time for brainstorming, the development of a bunch of ideas nobody's ever thought about that would make the project more interesting, more profitable, or just more fun. And finally, very few such meetings bring to bear sufficient rigor in determining action steps and accountabilities for the various aspects of a project plan. 
The good news is there is a productive way to think about projects, situations, and topics that creates maximum value with minimal expenditure of time and effort. It happens to be the way we naturally plan when we consciously try to get a project under control or simply execute for a desired outcome. In my experience, when people do more planning, informally and naturally, they relieve a great deal of stress and obtain better results. The Natural Planning Model You're already familiar with the most brilliant and creative planner in the world, your brain. You yourself are actually a planning machine. You're planning when you get dressed, eat lunch, go to the store, or simply talk. Although the process may seem somewhat random, a quite complex series of steps has to occur before your brain can make anything happen physically. Your mind goes through five steps to accomplish virtually any task. 1. Defining purpose and principles. 2. Outcome visioning. 3. Brainstorming. 4. Organizing. 5. Identifying Next Actions A simple example. Planning dinner out. The last time you went out to dinner, what initially caused you to think about doing it? It could have been any number of things. The desire to satisfy hunger, socialize with friends, celebrate a special occasion, sign a business deal, or develop a romance. As soon as any of these turned into a real inclination that you wanted to move on, you started planning. Your intention was your purpose, and it automatically triggered your internal planning process. Your principles created the boundaries of your plan. You probably didn't consciously think about your principles regarding going out to dinner, but you thought within them. Standards of food and service, affordability, convenience, and comfort all may have played a part. In any case, your purpose and principles were the defining impetus and boundaries of your planning. Once you decided to fulfill your purpose, what were your first substantive thoughts? Probably not point two A, three B in plan. Your first ideas were more likely things like Italian food at Giovanni's or sitting at a sidewalk table at the Bistro Cafe. You probably also imagined some positive picture of what you might experience or how the evening would turn out, maybe the people involved, the atmosphere, and or the outcome. That was your outcome visioning. Whereas your purpose was the why of your going out to dinner, your vision was an image of the what, of the physical worlds looking, sounding, and feeling the ways that best fulfilled your purpose. Once you've identified with your vision, what did your mind naturally begin doing? What did it start to think about? What time should we go? Is it open tonight? Will it be crowded? What's the weather like? Should we change clothes? Is there gas in the car? How hungry are we? That was brainstorming. Those questions were part of the naturally creative process that happens once you commit to some outcome that hasn't happened yet. Your brain noticed a gap between what you were looking toward and where you actually were at the time and it began to resolve that cognitive dissonance by trying to fill in the blanks. This is the beginning of the how phase of natural planning. But it did the thinking in a somewhat random and ad hoc fashion. Lots of different aspects of going to dinner just occurred to you. You almost certainly didn't need to actually write all of them down on a piece of paper, but you did a version of that process in your mind. If, however, you were handling the celebration for your best friend's recent triumph, the complexity and detail that might accrue in your head 
should warrant at least the back of an envelope. Once you had generated a sufficient number of ideas and details, you couldn't help but start to organize them. You may have thought or said, first we need to find out if the restaurant is open, or let's call the Andersons and see if they'd like to go out with us. Once you've generated various thoughts relevant to the outcome, your mind will automatically begin to sort them by components, sub-projects, priorities, and or sequences of events. Components would be, we need to handle logistics, people, and location. Priorities would be, it's critical to find out if the client really would like to go to dinner. Sequences would be, first we need to check whether the restaurant is open, then call the Andersons, then get dressed. This is the section of natural planning that incorporates challenge, comparisons, and evaluation by its very nature. One thing is bigger, better, or ahead of something else. Finally, assuming that you're really committed to the project, in this case, going out to dinner, you focus on the next action that you need to take to make the first component actually happen. Call Café Rouge to see if it's open and make the reservation. These five phases of project planning occur naturally for everything you accomplish during the day. It's how you create things. Dinner, a relaxing evening, a new product, or a new company. You have an urge to make something happen. You image the outcome. You generate ideas that might be relevant. You sort those into a structure. And you define a physical activity that would begin to make it a reality. And you do all of that naturally, without giving it much thought. Natural planning is not necessarily normal. But is the process described in the previous section the way your committee is planning the retreat? Is it how your IT team is approaching the new system installation? Is it how you're organizing the wedding or thinking through the potential merger? Have you clarified the primary purpose of the project and communicated it to everyone who ought to know it? And have you agreed on the standards and behaviors you'll need to adhere to in order to make it successful? Have you envisioned success and considered all the innovative things that might result if you achieved it? Have you gotten all possible ideas out on the table, everything you need to take into consideration that might affect the outcome? Have you identified the mission-critical components, key milestones, and deliverables? Have you defined all the aspects of the project that could be moved on right now, what the next action is for each part, and who's responsible for what? If you're like most people I interact with in a coaching or consulting capacity, the collective answer to these questions is probably not. There are likely to be at least some components of the natural planning model that you haven't implemented. In some of my seminars, I get participants to actually plan a current strategic project that uses this model. In only a few minutes, they walk themselves through all five phases and usually end up being amazed at how much progress they've made compared with what they have tried to do in the past. One gentleman came up afterward and told me, I don't know whether I should thank you or be angry. I just finished a business plan I've been telling myself would take months, and now I have no excuses for not doing it. You can try it for yourself right now, if you like. Choose one project that is new or stuck or that could simply use some improvement. Think of your purpose. Think of what a successful outcome would look like. Where would you be physically, financially, in terms of reputation or whatever? Brainstorm potential steps. Organize your ideas. Decide on the next actions. Are you any clearer about where you want to go and how to get there? The unnatural planning model. 
To emphasize the importance of utilizing the natural planning model for the more complex things we're involved with, let's contrast it with the more normal model used in most environments, what I call unnatural planning. When the good idea is a bad idea. Have you ever heard a well-intentioned manager or project head start a meeting with the question, Okay, so who's got a good idea about this? What's the assumption here? Before any evaluation of what's a good idea can be trusted, the purpose must be clear, the vision must be well-defined, and all the relevant data must have been collected, brainstormed, and analyzed, organized. What's a good idea is a good question, but only when you're about 80% of the way through your thinking. Starting there would probably blow anyone's creative mental fuses. Trying to approach any situation from a perspective that is not the natural way your mind operates will be difficult. People do it all the time, but it almost always engenders a lack of clarity and increased stress. In interactions with others, it opens the door for egos, politics, and hidden agendas to take over the discussion. Generally speaking, the most verbally aggressive will run the show. And if it's just you, attempting to come up with a good idea before defining your purpose, creating a vision, and collecting lots of initial bad ideas, is likely to give you a case of creative constipation. The Reactive Planning Model the unnatural model is what most people still consciously think of as planning, and because it's so often artificial and irrelevant to real work, people just don't plan. At least, not on the front end. They resist planning meetings, presentations, and strategic operations until the last minute. But what happens if you don't plan ahead of time? In many cases, crisis. Didn't you get the tickets? I thought you were going to do that. Then, when the urgency of the last minute is upon you, the reactive planning model ensues. What's the first level of focus when the stuff hits the fan? Action. Work harder. Overtime. More people. Get busier. And a lot of stressed out people are thrown at the situation. Then, when having a lot of busy people banging into each other doesn't resolve the situation, someone gets more sophisticated and says, we need to get organized. Catching on now? Then people draw boxes around the problem and label them, or redraw the boxes and relabel them. At some point, they realize that just redrawing boxes isn't really doing much to solve the problem. Now someone, much more sophisticated, suggests that more creativity is needed. Let's brainstorm. With everyone in the room, the boss asks, so who's got a good idea here? When not much happens, the boss may surmise that his staff has used up most of its internal creativity. Time to hire a consultant. Of course, if the consultant is worth his salt, at some point he's probably going to ask the big question, so what are you really trying to do here anyway? Vision. Purpose. Natural Planning Techniques. The Five Phases. It goes without saying, but still must be said again. Thinking in more effective ways about projects and situations can make things happen sooner, better, and more successfully. So if our minds plan naturally anyway, what can we learn from that? How can we use that model to facilitate getting more and better results in our thinking? Let's examine each of the five phases of natural planning and see how we can leverage these contexts. Purpose It never hurts to ask the why question. Almost anything you're currently doing can be enhanced and even galvanized by more scrutiny at this top level of focus. 
Why are you going to your next meeting? What's the purpose of your task? Why are you having friends over for dinner? Why are you hiring a marketing director instead of an agency? Why are you putting up with the situation in your service organization? Why do you have a budget? Ad infinitum. I admit it. This is nothing but advanced common sense. To know and to be clear about the purpose of any activity are prime directives for appropriate focus, creative development, and cooperation. But it's common sense that's not commonly practiced, simply because it's so easy for us to create things, get caught up in the form of what we've created, and let our connection with our real and primary intentions slip. I know, based upon thousands of hours spent in many offices with many sophisticated people, that the why question cannot be ignored. When people complain to me about having too many meetings, I have to ask, what is the purpose of the meetings? When they ask, who should I invite to the planning session? I have to ask, what's the purpose of the planning session? When the dilemma is whether to stay connected with work and email on a vacation or not, I have to ask, what's the primary purpose of the vacation? Until we have the answer to my questions, there's no possible way to come up with an appropriate response to theirs. The Value of Thinking About Why Here are just some of the benefits of asking why. It defines success. It creates decision-making criteria. It aligns resources. It motivates. It clarifies focus. It expands options. Let's take a closer look at each of these in turn. It defines success. People are starved for wins these days. We love to play games and we like to win, or at least be in a position where we could win. And if you're not totally clear about the purpose of what you're doing, you have no chance of winning. Purpose defines success. It's the primal reference point for any investment of time and energy, from deciding to run for elective office to designing a form. Ultimately, you can't feel good about a staff meeting unless you know what the purpose of the meeting was. And if you want to sleep well, you'd better have a good answer when your board asks why you fired your head of marketing or hired that hotshot MBA as your new finance director. You won't really know whether or not your business plan is any good until you hold it up against the success criterion that you define by answering the question, why do we need a business plan? It creates decision-making criteria. How do you decide whether to spend the money for a five-color brochure or just go with a two-color? How do you know whether it's worth hiring a major web design firm to handle your new website? How do you know if you should send your daughter to private school? It all comes down to purpose. Given what you're trying to accomplish, are these investments required? There's no way to know until the purpose is defined. It aligns resources. How should we spend our staffing allocation in the corporate budget? How do we best use the cash flow right now to maximize our viability as a retailer over the next year? Should we spend more money on the luncheon or on the speakers for the monthly association meeting? In each case, the answer depends on what we're really trying to accomplish, the why. It motivates. Let's face it, if there's no good reason to be doing something, it's not worth doing. I'm often stunned by how many people have forgotten why they're doing what they're doing, and by how quickly a simple question like, why are you doing that, can get them back on track. It clarifies focus. When you land on the real purpose for anything you're doing, it makes things clearer. 
Just taking two minutes and writing out your primary reason for doing something invariably creates an increased sharpness of vision, much like bringing a telescope into focus. Frequently, projects and situations that have begun to feel scattered and blurred grow clearer when someone brings it back home by asking, what are we really trying to accomplish here? It expands options. Paradoxically, even as purpose brings things into pinpoint focus, it opens up creative thinking about wider possibilities. When you really know the underlying why, for the conference, for the staff party, for your vacation, for the elimination of the management position, or for the merger, it expands your thinking about how to make the desired result happen. When people write out their purpose for a project in my seminars, they often claim it's like a fresh breeze blowing through their mind, clarifying their vision of what they're doing. Is your purpose clear and specific enough? If you're truly experiencing the benefits of a purpose focus, motivation, clarity, decision-making criteria, alignment, and creativity, then your purpose probably is specific enough. But many purpose statements are too vague to produce such results. To have a good team, for example, might be too broad or vague a goal. After all, what constitutes a good team? Is it a group of people who are highly motivated, collaborating in healthy ways, and taking initiative? Or is it a team that comes in under budget? In other words, if you don't really know when you've met your purpose or when you're off track, you don't have a viable directive. The question, how will I know when this is off purpose, must have a clear answer. Principles Of equal value as prime criteria for driving and directing a project are the standards and values you hold. Although people seldom think about these consciously, they are always there, and if they are violated, the result will inevitably be unproductive distraction and stress. A great way to think about what your principles are is to complete this sentence. I would give others totally free reign to do this as long as they... As long as they what? What policies, stated or unstated, will apply to your group's activities? As long as they stayed within budget? Satisfied the client? ensured a healthy team, promoted a positive image. It can be a major source of stress when others engage in or allow behavior that's outside your standards. If you never have to deal with this issue, you're truly graced. If you do, some constructive conversation about and clarification of principles could align the energy and prevent unnecessary conflict. You may want to begin by asking yourself, what behavior might undermine what I'm doing and how can I prevent it? That will give you a good starting point for defining your standards. Another great reason for focusing on principles is the clarity and reference point they provide for positive conduct. How do you want or need to work with others on this project to ensure its success? What behaviors are in and out of bounds for your kids on the family vacation? You and others are at your best when you're acting how? Whereas purpose provides the juice and the direction, Principles define the parameters of action and the criteria for excellence of conduct. Vision Outcome In order to most productively access the conscious and unconscious resources available to you, you must have a clear picture in your mind of what success would look, sound, and feel like. Purpose and principles furnish the impetus and the monitoring, but vision provides the actual blueprint of the final result. This is the what instead of the why. What will this project or situation really be like when it successfully appears in the world? 
For example, graduates of your seminar are demonstrating consistently applied knowledge of the subject matter. Market share has increased 2% within the Northeastern region over the last fiscal year. Your daughter is clear about your guidelines and support for her first semester in college. The Power of Focus Since the 1960s, thousands of books have expounded on the value of appropriate positive imagery and focus. Forward-looking focus has even been a key element in Olympic-level sports training, with athletes imagining the physical effort, the positive energy, and the successful result to ensure the highest level of unconscious support for their performance. We know that the focus we hold in our minds affects what we perceive and how we perform. This is as true on the golf course as it is in a staff meeting or during a serious conversation with a life partner. My interest here lies in providing a model for focus that is dynamic in a practical way, especially in project thinking. When you focus on something, the vacation you're going to take, the meeting you're about to go into, the project you want to launch, that focus instantly creates ideas and thought patterns you wouldn't have had otherwise. Even your physiology will respond to an image in your head as if it were reality. The Reticular Activating System The May 1957 issue of Scientific American magazine contains an article describing the discovery of the reticular formation at the base of the brain. The reticular formation is basically the gateway to your conscious awareness. It's the switch that turns on your perception of ideas and data, the thing that keeps you asleep even when music's playing, but wakes you if a special little baby cries in another room. Just like a computer, your brain has a search function, but it's even more phenomenal than a computer's. It seems to be programmed by what we focus on and, more primarily, what we identify with. It's the seat of what many people have referred to as the paradigms we maintain. We notice only what matches our internal belief systems and identified contexts. If you're an optometrist, for example, you'll tend to notice people wearing eyeglasses across a crowded room. If you're a building contractor, you may notice the room's physical details. If you focus on the color red right now, and then just glance around your environment, if there is any red at all, you'll see even the tiniest bits of it. The implications of how this filtering works how we are unconsciously made conscious of information, could fill a week-long seminar, if not the rest of your life. Suffice it to say that something automatic and extraordinary happens in your mind when you create and focus on a clear picture of what you want. Clarifying Outcomes There is a simple but profound principle that emerges from understanding the way your perceptive filters work. You won't see how to do it until you see yourself doing it. It's easy to envision something happening if it has happened before or you have had experience with similar successes. It can be quite a challenge, however, to identify with images of success if they represent new and foreign territory. That is, if you have few reference points about what an event might actually look like and little experience of your own ability to make it happen. Many of us hold ourselves back from imagining a desired outcome unless someone can show us how to get there. Unfortunately, that's backward in terms of how our minds work to generate and recognize solutions and methods. One of the most powerful life skills and one of the most important to hone and develop for both professional and personal success is creating clear outcomes. This is not as self-evident as it may sound. We need to constantly define and redefine what we're trying to accomplish on many different levels 
and consistently reallocate resources toward getting these tasks complete as effectively and efficiently as possible. What will this project look like when it's done? How do you want the client to feel, and what do you want him to know and do after the presentation? Where will you be in your career three years from now? How would the ideal head of finance do his job? What would your website really look like and have as capabilities if it could be the way you wanted it? What would your relationship with your son feel like if this conversation you need to have with him were successful? Outcome vision can range from a simple statement of the project, such as finalized computer system implementation, to a completely scripted movie depicting the future scene in all its glorious detail. When I'm able to get people to focus on a successful scenario of their project, they usually experience heightened enthusiasm and think of something unique and positive about it that didn't occur to them before. Wouldn't it be great if is not a bad way to start thinking about a situation, at least for long enough to have the option of getting an answer. Brainstorming once you know what you want to happen and why, the how mechanism is brought into play. When you identify with some picture in your mind that is different from your current reality, you automatically start filling in the gaps or brainstorming. Ideas begin to pop into your head in somewhat random order. Little ones, big ones, not-so-good ones, good ones. This process usually goes on internally for most people about most things, and that's often sufficient. For example, you think about what you want to say to your boss as you're walking down the hall to speak to her. But there are many other instances when writing things down or capturing them in some external way can give a tremendous boost to productive output and thinking. Capturing Your Ideas Over the past several decades, a number of graphics-oriented brainstorming techniques have been introduced to help develop creative thinking about projects and topics. They've been given names such as mind mapping, clustering, patterning, webbing, and fishboning. Although the authors of these various processes may portray them as being different from one another, for most of us end users, the basic premise remains the same. Give yourself permission to capture and express any idea, and then later on figure out how it fits in and what to do with it. If nothing else, and there is plenty of else, this practice adds to your efficiency. When you have the idea, you grab it, which means you won't have to have the idea again. The most popular of these concepts and techniques is called mind mapping, a name coined by Tony Buzan, a British researcher in brain functioning, to label this process of brainstorming ideas into a graphic format. In mind mapping, the core idea is presented in the center, with associated ideas growing out in a somewhat freeform fashion around it. For instance, if I found out that I had to move my office, I might think about computers, changing my business cards, all the connections I'd have to change, new furniture, moving the phones, purging and packing, and so on. You could do this kind of mind mapping on post-its that could be stuck on a whiteboard, or you could input ideas into a word processing program, outlining program, or one of the many mind mapping software applications on the market. Distributed Cognition the great thing about external brainstorming is that in addition to capturing your original ideas, it can help generate many new ones that might not have occurred to you if you didn't have a mechanism to hold your thoughts and continually reflect them back to you. It's as if your mind were to say, look, I'm only going to give you as many ideas as you feel you can effectively use. 
If you're not collecting them in some trusted way, I won't give you that many. But if you're actually doing something with the ideas, even if it's just recording them for later evaluation, then here, have a bunch. And, oh wow, that reminds me of another one, and another, etc. Psychologists have now labeled this and similar processes distributed cognition. It's getting things out of your head and into objective, reviewable formats, building an extended mind. But my English teacher in high school didn't have to know about the theory to give me the key. David, he said, you're going to college, and you're going to be writing papers. Write all your notes and quotes on separate 3 by 5 inch cards. Then when you get ready to organize your thinking, just spread them all out on the floor, see the natural structure that emerges, and figure out what's missing. Mr. Edmondson was teaching me a major piece of the natural planning model. Few people can hold their focus on a topic for more than a couple of minutes without some objective structure and tool or trigger to help them. Pick a big project you have going right now and just try to think of nothing else for more than 30 seconds. This is pretty hard to do unless you have a pen and paper in hand and use one of those cognitive artifacts as the anchor for your ideas. Then you can stay with it for hours. That's why good thinking can happen while you're working on a computer document about a project, mind mapping it on a notepad, doodling about it on a paper tablecloth, or just having a meeting about it with other people in a room that allows you to hold the context. A whiteboard with nice wet markers really helps there, too. Brainstorming Keys Many techniques can be used to facilitate brainstorming and out-of-the-box thinking. The basic principles, however, can be summed up as follows. Don't judge, challenge, evaluate, or criticize. Go for quantity, not quality. Put analysis and organization in the background. Don't judge, challenge, evaluate, or criticize. It's easy for the unnatural planning model to rear its ugly head in brainstorming, making people jump to premature evaluations and critiques of ideas. If you care even slightly about what a critic thinks, you'll censor your expressive process as you look for the right thing to say. There's a very subtle distinction between keeping brainstorming on target with the topic and stifling the creative process. It's also important that brainstorming be put into the overall context of the planning process. Because if you think you're doing it just for its own sake, it can seem trite and inappropriately off course. If you can understand it instead as something you're doing right now for a certain period before you move toward a resolution at the end, you'll feel more comfortable giving this part of the process its due. This is not to suggest that you should shut off critical thinking, though. Everything ought to be fair game at this stage. Here's what might be wrong with that approach needs to be on the table, if it's present. Often, it's the most challenging and critical ideas that have the germ of the best ones. It's just wise to understand what kinds of thoughts you're having and to park them for use in the most appropriate way. The primary criteria must be inclusion and expansion, not constriction and contraction. Go for quantity, not quality. Going for quantity keeps your thinking expansive. Often you won't know what's a good idea until you have it. And sometimes you'll realize it's a good idea, or the germ of one, only later on. You know how shopping at a big store with lots of options lets you feel comfortable about your choice? The same holds true for project thinking. The greater the volume of thoughts you have to work with, the better the context you can create for developing options and trusting your choices. 
put analysis and organization in the background. Analysis and evaluation and organization of your thoughts should be given as free a reign as creative, out-of-the-box thinking. But in the brainstorming phase, this critical activity should not be the driver. Making a list can be a creative thing to do. It's a way to consider the people who should be on your team, the customer requirements for the software, or the components of the business plan. Just make sure to grab all that and keep going until you get into the weeding and organizing of focus that make up the next stage. Organizing If you've done a thorough job of emptying your head of all the things that came up in the brainstorming phase, you'll notice that a natural organization is emerging. As my high school English teacher suggested, once you get all the ideas out of your head and in front of your eyes, you'll automatically notice natural relationships and structure. This is what most people are referring to when they talk about organizing a project. Organizing usually happens when you identify components and subcomponents, sequences of events, and or priorities. What are the things that must occur to create the final result? In what order must they occur? What is the most important element to ensure the success of the project? This is the stage in which you can make good use of structuring tools ranging from informal bullet points scribbled on the back of an envelope to heavy horsepower project planning software. When a project calls for substantial objective control, you'll need some type of hierarchical outline with components and subcomponents and or a Gantt-type chart showing stages of the project laid out over time with independent and dependent parts and milestones identified in relationship to the whole. Creative thinking doesn't stop here. It just takes another form. Once you perceive a basic structure, your mind will start trying to fill in the blanks. Identifying the three key things that you need to handle on the project, for example, may cause you to think of a fourth and a fifth when you see them all lined up. The Basics of Organizing The key steps here are Identify the significant pieces. Sort by one or more of the following. Components, sequences, priorities, and then detail to the required degree. I've never seen any two projects that needed to have exactly the same amount of structure and detail developed in order to get things off people's minds and moving successfully. But almost all projects can use some form of creative thinking from the sequential part of the brain along the lines of What's the plan? Next actions. The final stage of planning comes down to decisions about the allocation and reallocation of physical resources to actually get the project moving. The question to ask here is, what's the next action? As we noted in the previous chapter, this kind of grounded, reality-based thinking, combined with clarification of the desired outcome, forms the critical component for defining and clarifying what our real work is. In my experience, creating a list of what your real projects are and consistently managing your next action for each one will constitute 90% of what is generally thought of as project planning. This ground floor approach will make you honest about all kinds of things. Are you really serious about doing this? Who is responsible? Have you thought things through enough? At some point, if the project is an actionable one, this next action thinking decision must be made. You can also plan non-actionable projects and not need a next action, for example, designing your dream house. The lack of a next action by default makes it a someday maybe project, 
and that's fine for anything of that nature. Answering the question about what specifically you would do about something physically if you had nothing else to do will test the maturity of your thinking about the project. If you're not yet ready to answer that question, you have more to flesh out at some prior level in the natural planning sequence. The Basics Decide on next actions for each of the current moving parts of the project. Decide on the next action in the planning process, if necessary. Activating the moving parts A project is sufficiently planned for implementation when every next action step has been decided on every front that can actually be moved on without some other components having to be completed first. If the project has multiple components, each of them should be assessed appropriately by asking, is there something that anyone could be doing on this right now? You could be coordinating speakers for the conference, for instance, at the same time that you're finding the appropriate site. In some cases, there will be only one aspect that can be activated, and everything else will depend on the results of that. So there may be only one next action, which will be the linchpin for all the rest. More to plan? What if there is still more planning to be done before you can feel comfortable with what's next? There's still an action step. It is just a process action. What's the next step in the continuation of planning? Drafting more ideas. Emailing Anna Maria and Sean to get their input. Telling your assistant to set up a planning meeting with the product team. The habit of clarifying the next action on projects, no matter what the situation, is fundamental to you staying in relaxed control. When the next action is someone else's. If the next action is not yours, you must nevertheless clarify whose it is. This is a primary use of the waiting for action list. In a group planning situation, it isn't necessary for everyone to know what the next step is on every part of the project. Often all that's required is to allocate responsibility for parts of the project to the appropriate persons and leave it up to them to identify next actions on their particular pieces. This next action conversation forces organizational clarity. Issues and details emerge that don't show up until someone holds everyone's feet to the fire about the physical level reality of resource allocation. It's a simple practical discussion to foster and one that can significantly stir the pot and identify weak links. How much planning do you really need to do? How much of this planning model do you really need to flesh out and to what degree of detail? The simple answer is as much as you need to get the project off your mind. In general, the reason things are on your mind is that the outcome and action steps have not been appropriately defined, and or reminders of them have not been put in places where you can be trusted to look for them appropriately. Additionally, you may not have developed the details, perspectives, and solutions sufficiently to trust the efficacy of your blueprint. Most projects, given my definition of a project as an outcome requiring more than one action, need no more than a listing of their outcome and next action for you to get them off your mind. You need a new stockbroker? You just have to call a friend for a recommendation. You want to set up a new printer at home? You just need to surf the web to check out different models and prices. I estimate that 80% of projects are of that nature. You'll still be doing the full planning model on all of them, but only in your head, and just enough to figure out next actions and keep them going until they're complete. Another 15% or so of projects might require at least some external form of brainstorming, 
maybe a mind map or a few notes in a word processing or presentation program. That might be sufficient for planning meeting agendas, your vacation, or a speech to the local chamber of commerce. A final 5% of projects might need the deliberate application of one or more of the five phases of the natural planning model. The model provides a practical recipe for unsticking things, resolving them, and moving them forward productively. Are you aware of a need for greater clarity or more action on any of your projects? If so, using the model can often be the key to making effective progress. Need more clarity? If greater clarity is what you need, shift your thinking up the natural planning scale. People are often very busy, action, but nonetheless experience confusion and a lack of clear direction. They need to pull out the plan or create one, organize. If there's a lack of clarity at the planning level, there's probably a need for more brainstorming to generate a sufficient inventory of current ideas and data to create trust in the plan. If the brainstorming session gets bogged down with fuzzy thinking, the focus should shift back to the vision of the outcome, ensuring that the reticular filter in the brain will open up to deliver the how-to thinking. If the outcome vision is unclear, you must return to a clean analysis of why you're engaged in the situation in the first place. Purpose. Need more to be happening? If more action is what's needed, you need to move down the model. There may be enthusiasm about the purpose of a project, but at the same time some resistance to actually fleshing out what fulfilling it in the real world might look like. These days, the task of improving quality of work life may be on the radar for a manager, but often he won't yet have defined a clear picture of the desired result. The thinking must go to the specifics of the vision. Again, ask yourself, what would the outcome look like? If you formulated an answer to that question, but things are still stuck, it's probably time for you to grapple with some of the how issues and the operational details and perspectives. Brainstorming. I often have clients who have inherited a relatively clearly articulated project, such as implement the new performance review system, but who aren't moving forward because they haven't yet taken a few minutes to dump some ideas out about what that might entail. If brainstorming gets hung up, and very often it does for the more blue-sky types, Rigor may be required to do some evaluation of and decision-making about mission-critical deliverables that have to be handled, organizing. This is sometimes the case when an informal back-and-forth meeting that has generated lots of ideas ends without producing any decision about what actually needs to happen next on the project. And if there is a plan, but the rubber still isn't hitting the road like it should, someone needs to assess each component with the focus of What's the next action, and who's got it? One manager, who had taken over responsibility many months in advance for organizing a major annual conference, asked me how to prevent the crisis all-nighters her team had experienced near the deadline of the previous year. When she produced an outline of the various pieces of the project she'd inherited, I asked, which pieces could actually be moved on right now? After identifying half a dozen, we clarified the next action on each one. It was off and running, in time to prevent a repeat of the previous year's last-minute chaos. In the prior two chapters, I covered the basic models of how to stay maximally productive and in control, with minimal effort, at the two most basic levels of our life and work. The actions we take and the projects we enter into that generate many of those actions. 
The fundamentals remain true. You must be responsible for collecting all your open loops, applying a front-end thought process to each of them, and managing the results with organization, review, and action. For all those situations that you have any level of commitment to complete, there is a natural planning process that occurs to get you from here to there. Leveraging that five-phase model can often make the evolution easier, faster, and more productive. These models are simple to understand and easy to implement. Applying them creates remarkable results. You need essentially no new skills. You already know how to write things down, clarify outcomes, decide next actions, put things into categories, review it all, and make intuitive choices. Right now you have the ability to focus on successful results, brainstorm, organize your thinking, and get moving on your next steps. But just knowing how to do all of those things does not produce results. Merely having the ability to be highly productive, relaxed, and in control doesn't make you that way. If you're like most people, you could use a coach, someone to walk you step-by-step step through the experience and provide some guideposts and handy tricks along the way until your new operational style is elegantly embedded. You'll find that in Part 2. Hello, listener. Thank you for listening to our content. Remember to follow us here on the platform. We prepared a graphic of the book with the author's key points and main ideas. Click that book graphic link in description now and have access to an illustrated material with simple and easy steps so you know everything about the book in minutes.